This video is sponsored by Wing Wing Technology, your ultimate fly sim hardware solution. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing wonderfully well. Today for our next interview, and this should be a really interesting one. We've got Nigel, please say hello Nigel. Hi Cap, hi everybody. And thank you very much for joining us. So the title of this is Fast Jet Navigator slash Weapon System Officer Interview. First things first, if I run through your bio, then we can get an idea of who we are and then we'll jump onto the questions. A retired squadron leader, Royal Air Force, Fast Jet Navigator Weapon System Officer, currently specializing in training design, development and capability insertion. Have flown Hawk, F4 Phantom, FGR2, Tornado F3 in RAF. I've also flown in F16, Harrier GR3, Pilatus PC21, flown in Major Exercise Red Flag, Maple Flag, and many overseas attachments. Maple Flag, is that Canadian? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's equivalent of Red Flag, slightly smaller, but uh, similar exercises. Cool. Flown against all of the above, plus against Buck. Jaguar, which I just love, F-111, love, F-14, love, F-15C, love, F-15E, F-18, Mirage, 2000, B-1B, Wowza, Draken, F-104, Starfighter, Herc, Lynx, Puma, Helicopters, Canberra, oh, Vulcan, oh my god, uh, Live Russian QRA Intercepts uh, versus Bear and Bison, pretty amazing, uh, Career History, we'll just blast through this relatively quickly, sure. Navigator Training 1981, so this is this is when I was one basically, <laughs> that's cool. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry, I had to go there. Uh, we've got F4 Phantom, uh, 43 Squadron, uh, RAF, 81 to 85, Advanced Low Level Navigation Instruction, 85 to 89, F3 Tornado Instructor, uh, Coningsby. 8992, Saudi Arabia, 35 Squadron, uh, 9295, F3 Tornado Squadron, WSO Executive Officer, 5 Squadron, 9998, RAF Staff College, 98 so that was 79 to um, uh, 2000, I've uh, got Training Systems uh, Specialist there, uh, Pilatus Aircraft, 2000-2008, BAE Systems, 2008-2012, Aircrew Training Specialist, BAE Systems Saudi Arabia, 12-17, to 17, uh, Senior Training Authority, and BAE System, BAE Systems, 2017 to now, air crew training manager and this is all this sheet is public uh, publicly available if uh, anyone wants to delve into any deeper stuff than that so we've got a rough idea now of who you are nigel which is great and your vast experience excellent anything before we kick off with the questions no go for it great just so you know in case you haven't seen one of these before, regards to the questions, we ask the valued viewers, the public, to give us the questions. Um, it means they can be sometimes a little bit uh, difficult to read because of different dialects and, and you know so on. But they are usually yeah. genuinely really good ones, rather than me asking you kind of safe, boring questions. Right. So we'll start with what is called number two here. What were some of the more interesting things you learned in cockpit design and display formats? For instance, were you, ooh, it goes off the edge of the page. What's the solution to that? Uh, there we go. For instance, what were your thoughts going into the field based, uh, into that field based on previous flight experience contrasted with what actually learned in designing a cockpit user interface? Okay, well, the, the, the thing here was uh, in my bio, I said that I've done uh, staff college, okay, which is a sort of um, a course you do uh, prior to hopefully getting promoted and all of, all of that kind of thing. But whilst I was there, a friend of mine, an ex-Phantom uh, backseater who actually um, moved over to the mud-moving GR4, 
he left the Air Force. He did some work for Pilatus Aircraft on a mission system. And they said, we like that. We're developing a new tactical trainer. Would you like to come and work for us? Um, so he started doing that. And then he called me and said, hey, Nigel, we need more fast jet aircrew in here because we basically got a blank sheet of paper and we need someone to, you know, people like you to come in and, and, and design what's going to effectively go on the screens and develop the mission system. So with that on one shoulder and the Air Force saying, you know, stay in, there's a bit of a career going on here, I actually chose to, to leave. And to come back to the, the question is, is whilst in the Air Force, I would never have, have been involved in cockpit design, really, or display formats, unless you went on to um, some kind of test and evaluation unit. Uh, so it was really, really attractive to go to Pilatus, who were building this new tactical trainer. And essentially, it was a, an advanced turboprop um, that they hoped was going to replace the Tucano in the Royal Air Force. So that would have been large numbers. And hopefully also, you know, other countries like Australia, those kind of countries who were operating the, the Hawk at the time, uh, the advanced, the more advanced version, what we call the T2 version of the Hawk, not the T1 that the, the Red Arrows fly, for example. Uh, that it would interface with that. Um, so it looked really good. And when I got there, they, they weren't even cutting metal at the time. It was all the design uh, elements that went into it. Mm -hmm. So we formed a cockpit working group um, of which they said, Nigel, you be the, the chairman of the cockpit working group. And basically it was uh, a bunch of engineers and aircrew who got together and said, OK, we've got this aeroplane that's effectively been designed by some clever people with two brains, um, but we've got some screens on here in the mission system that we've got to fill up. So what do we want to do? How are we going to do it? Um, so we could, you know, we could start from, okay, the aircraft has got to be a basic trainer. It's got to take a, an ABO possibly straight off the street, or it may be that the Air Force in question would be flying a, you know, a Grob or a light piston aircraft or something like that. So it may have to cater for the left-hand end, but it's also got to interface into the right-hand end like a jet trainer. Now the advantage of the PC-21 is that it, it was way above any other turboprop and still is, you know, it could do in ISA conditions, you know, in sort of normal standard atmospheric conditions, it would do 330 knots at low level. So it was a bit of a blazer. Yeah. And so it would start to potentially start to eat into some of that traditional training that's done by a jet that's therefore more expensive and things like that. So that's the, that's the background to it. Um, so we had a, uh, it's got three big six by eight inch displays. In fact, the, the whole cockpit was a, uh, Total digital cockpit. Uh, oh, the only yeah. gauge in it, I think, was a triple trim gauge. So we had a set center display, which for training aircraft, you normally have your center display is where all your, your main flight instruments are. It had a head-up display as well, but the head-up display was not the certified um, major display. It was the, uh, the one below. When you go on to fighters, then you can spend a lot more money and get a HUD certified. But uh, for a, a trainer, it's, it's not worth the money. So you had your center 8 by 6 inch display was where all the instrumentation was for, for flying. But the other two, left and right, we could put whatever we want on it. So we were designing an aircraft that um, could also do air-to-air, -air, a synthetic air-to-air -air radar in there. And it had a synthetic air-to-ground capability in there as well. So the questions were, well, what do we do? Do we leave it, for example, as a dark screen? Uh, it, let's say in terms of emergencies, do we leave it an instrument? Do we leave it as a dark screen? And it, the airplane only talks to you when something's gone wrong. The problem with that, from an engineering side, the engineers got really excited and said, that's great. Whereas on the flying side, we said, well, that's not really the way to go, although you can, because the chances are that these guys coming off this aircraft will be going into a, an aircraft, a jet trainer that the customer currently has, and is probably of, you know, a generation before. 
and you don't want to have negative backwards training. So we threw that out. But essentially, we went with, you know, the, the green is good. So all your, your hide instruments, anything that's telling you, you know, stuff that you really need to know, if the digits and the dials in green, you don't even have to read it. Green is good. If it goes to red, then you've got to do something. If it goes to amber, you've got to think about it and do it when it's, mm. when it's appropriate. So we had all of that, you know, to deal with right from the word go. The other thing was navigation system. Well, what aircraft is this going to interface with? And we were hoping it would interface with an RAF Hawk or an, an Aussie Hawk, a 127. So the airplane had a Hawk HOTAS system in it, okay, from the start. Yeah. So we thought, okay, well, let, let's, let's have a look at that. And, and it was down to, to me, fortunately, you know, to go and study all of the, the fast jet cockpits around, like Tornado at the time, F-18, uh, Harrier, F-16, although that's slightly different than F-16 cockpit, um, to look at all of, of that and come out with what the best bits are, bearing in mind that we're not talking about a frontline pilot here, we're talking about a, a student. So you can't, you can't put too much in there. But for the advanced stuff, we wanted to you know, have something that was going to be intuitive, easy to use. So we picked probably the best bits, we thought, out of all of those mission systems and saw how they work. And one of the questions, um, it'll be down here as well, someone asked me what's my favorite map was. I, I ended up fortunately going to RAF Wittering to talk to the Harrier guys. I gave them a quick brief on what we were doing and, and I said, look, you know, we're now looking, got all these lovely displays, we're looking at digital map. We have the capability to put loads and loads of layers on the map so we could put rivers on there, roads, railway networks, and you could deselect them if you wanted to. And they came back to us and said, we haven't got time for anything like that. You know, when you're down at low level or whatever, mm -hmm. they said, we want to see on our digital map display, the same display as our paper map that we planned on, which was probably a, a half mil yeah. map. Okay, because they said we are used to that. And when we look in the airplane, that's how we want to see it. We don't want anything fancy, bang. So, you know, that was a good uh, direction for us uh, to go for as well. So there were many, many things, swapping the displays over, all doing it from the HOTAS, doing it from pressing the screens as well in case for a, a younger, you know, a more inexperienced uh, pilot who's learning, he may not be using the HOTAS fully yet. So he has to have the ability to, you know, make the same selections off of the screens. So that was really, really, good fun and we had a um a very very good what we call vaps programming which is a piece of software that it basically designed the mission system so we'd, we'd go and see him tell him what we wanted he would code it the engineers would go and load it in the aircraft uh, and then we'd go and fly it and fortunately i was also part of the the flight test and development team so i got to fly the aircraft and test out some of the things that we were we were doing as well and i mean the the efficiency we could go flying in the morning test something out for example, the um, central warning panel. Let's have a look at the colours of red, amber, and green. Can you see them when the sun's over your shoulder, and all of that? What you know? What does the hub flood out when you've got the sun behind you? Uh, go up there, do a flight, make some notes, come back, go to our VAT programmer, and say you need to adjust the colour of the red. It looks a bit salmon, and he'd do that, and then either later on that day or the next morning, upload the software. Away we go, and we fly again. So it was really, really good fun. And I would never, if I'd have stayed in the Air Force, I would, I can't see a scenario, uh, particularly as a backseater, where I would have been involved in, you know, in that kind of yeah. design. And, and I, I, there are loads of stories I could tell you about, 
you know, other parts of the aeroplane as well. But the question was about displays and mm-hmm. display formats. That, that was and a... I... That was an amazing description. I had never thought we'd get so much in. No, that's wonderful. That's what that's what people tune in for at the end of the day. This because yeah. you'll never hear it anywhere else. Um, no, really good. I mean, just observations from the layman. Um, I mean, that, that, I'm looking at the rear of the plot of the PC. 21 right now yep. and it's almost identical to actually an aircraft we have in our dcs simulator it's called a jf-17 it's chinese slash pakistan yep. uh, aircraft well, and, and it, it, the design velocity is so similar oh absolutely and if you ever if dcs ever get a grip and i'll you know i'd love i'm going to tell simon that he because i know simon <laughs> pearson very well in okay. fact we train together uh, on the low level squadron at aria finningly funnily enough right. we yeah uh, i'll tell him that you need to put a gripping in there now when we were designing the cockpit Grippen guys came, uh, they had a, um, a Grippen test pilot came and uh, he was having a look around. We showed him around the jet and he said, you need to come and, and uh, visit us because your cockpit is almost identical to our cockpit in the Grippen with the three six by eights and yeah. the sort of up control pack. Obviously it had a much wider holographic HUD and things like that. Um, yeah, so I got in a car with a, uh, a pilot friend of mine and, and we were going to go off to to Sweden talk to them but unfortunately um, my pilot driving the car plowed us into the side oh, of a, a fuel tanker so uh, we had a we didn't quite make it no. unfortunately yeah right. but we were, we were looking at you know getting quite excited by if you if you paired up the PC21 and the Gripen and missed out the jet trainer side of it you could have a really really tight neat um, training system you know and this and these the sort of way you move from a PC-21 into a Gripen would be seem almost seamless in terms of the cockpit, obviously mm-hmm. not the complexity, but you know, that that's, that's one of the big training issues you get. You know, you have to spend time learning a new cockpit. If you don't have to do that, just the mission system and other stuff, obviously, um, you know, it cuts down the training time, cuts down the cost. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, there's all that muscle memory you've got to gain. You've got to know where pretty much every button is by heart, Absolutely. haven't you? Absolutely. Yes. Um, yeah. Otherwise, you'll end up like me trying to fly 40 aircraft and just spending all of your t- time <laughs> swearing because you can't find everything. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, yeah. Really interesting <laughs> there. Um, there's just one thing I need to pick up on there. You said uh, the HUD wasn't certified for combat or something. What is, what's this all about? No, um, when you, when you um, design an aeroplane, you have to, obviously, it has to be certified, which means you, you know, the authorities that will give you permission to go and fly it and operate it. They have to check it out, test it out, and everything, and then you you basically get a stamp to say, okay, you can now go and sell this this aircraft. And certain things are are more expensive than others. So, for example, if I come back to the central display where all your main flight instruments are, because that's the best place to have it, mm. um, those are what we called flight safety critical instruments. You know, obviously, you didn't want your attitude indicator or your ASI, you know, going wrong at any time. So those things were coded to a very, very high level of code. And the cost to do that was quite high. Okay. Um, if you wanted to cert- then certify your HUD as the, the main flight instrument, okay, so your display below became the secondary one if the HUD failed, um, then that too was massively expensive software. To create so we had to make a decision we had to say look this at the end of the day this is a training aircraft okay it's not a 70 million pound typhoon mm. so we have to make sure that we spend the money wisely no one's asking us to have a hud certified airplane 
Um, so we, we didn't do it. it. To be honest, it didn't really affect the way you flew the aircraft because once anybody who's never flown a HUD before gets into an aircraft with a HUD, it's like finding gold bars. Mm. You don't want to let it go. Okay, so most people would do everything through the HUD, um, but they would have to. Part of the, the, the scan you taught the student would be, look, the HUD can go wrong because it's not flight safety critical coded software. So make sure that you're always comparing what's up top on the HUD with what is for real down the bottom and vice versa. And you should do that in an airplane anyway. Yeah. yeah so that, that that's the story behind it. It's just expensive money cap to, uh, to certify everything. I was just to follow up on that. I'm afraid to segue off again, but um, I, I remember I was talking to someone not too dissimilar in your experience, but working for uh, a different country and in, in there, I think it was United States uh, maintainer. And we got around to the thing of saying, why doesn't this aircraft have a nice, simple GPS you know, system like you would have on your car, for instance, you know, a hundred dollar GPS screen. And in fact, I said, why can't you just go and grab, you know, to make it affordable, why can't you just go and grab one of those, you know, mass market Tom Toms? I think we used to call them. You know, the kind of thing you'd have in a car. Yeah. Plonk it in yeah. your your fancy F sixteen. Um, you know it's going to work because you've driven on your car. He said, "No, it's not that simple. You've got because it's got to go through this regulatory system and kind of like what you were talking about to get a system that does just the same job and maybe isn't even as good would cost tens of thousands of pounds per unit to add to each aircraft because it has to be certified. Blah 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 blah." Um, so that's kind of uh, what you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, if you looked in a Red Arrows Hawk or the Hawks current T1s that are that are flying around, um, they do have a you know a a, G, a simple GPS that you could go and buy. Yeah. Okay, which does the job for telling you what your position is. But if you want to drop weapons, then you're going to need something that's got you know I would say a lot more accuracy in it. You know, so there, there are two things on the GPS. It's telling you where you are, obviously, which needs to be as accurate as you can. But when you're in a non-tactical aircraft, mm. you know, that's OK. But if you want to drop something, then for real, then you've got to go to, you know, a couple of levels above that. And that's yeah. what's going to cost you in the time and the money. Absolutely. Another example in the PC-21, obviously, we simulate a weapon system, you know, because it's a synthetic air-to-air mm. uh, -air and air-to-ground radar. So you can bring up the weapon display and you can select your, your bombs, your fusing and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but we actually, if, if we'd have put a, a weapon, let's say a, uh, a three kilogram practice bomb on that, all right, then to get rid of those bombs, if something goes wrong, the switch that you would press to jettison becomes oh, a, you know, a 12,000 pound switch. Yeah. Whereas because we're doing it in simulation, the switch could looks exactly the same and functions the same, but it's, you know, it's probably, I don't know, 500 pounds. Or yeah. something like that. Well, this yeah. this idea of simulating, sim being in the air, being in a real aircraft with all the real risks, but being able to simulate the weapon stuff, that's saving so much dollar, isn't it? It, it does. And, you know, there were big debates. There were big debates in the in the Air Force because at the moment, RF Valley, I say at the moment, it won't change, flying the T2 Hawk, um, they don't do any um, dropping of bombs or firing of guns. It's all done in simulation, okay, which is fine. Um, it teaches you the right techniques, it teaches you the same techniques as if you had the weapons on board yourself. But there is a counter-argument to say the thing is that when you walk out to an aircraft that's got real weapons on, okay, you do feel a bit more nervous, mm. you, you, know, you feel a bit more careful about 
you know, wow, I've got live weapons on, you know, what if, what if I cock it up or, mm. or something like that? It's a little bit like the, the difference between flying in a simulator and flying in an aeroplane and, you know, and, and hauling the aircraft around at, at low level where it's really dangerous. You get, sorry, in a sim, you crash. But the point is, is that you should be training in the sims mm -hmm. as you train in the air, you know, and, and it should be immaterial as to whether you've got a live weapon on or not because your training techniques and, and what's instilled in you, you know, throughout a whole syllabus will be to do what you're supposed to do. And whether you've got something hung on it or not, it makes no difference. There is a psychological uh, aspect to it, but it doesn't appear now to have, um, you know, created any kind of problems is what I would say. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Okay, right. We better push on. <laughs> uh, that, that was a good start that was when training against the buccaneer how did you overcome its prowess at low level tactics we've had several stories in fact from bucket well from simon for instance rear seater of the well, buck yeah. uh you know and, and the kind of things that would do at red flag at nine feet off the ground and the way yeah. it could you know punch above its weight um anyway your kind of response to the question please yeah um hopefully i've shot you know i've, I've shot simon pearson down several times <laughs> but uh, <laughs> i had to get that in mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, to be honest, the buck guys, they were sharp. You know, the guys who went to the buck were, you know, they were not idiots. And, and quite often, you know, they were some of the better guys um, from the air to ground side who went there. So I'd certainly give them that. And they were masters of what they, they did. So I, I re only came across the buck when I was on F4s, not, re not on uh, Tornado F3s. Um, and they were difficult. And when, you know, when they were camouflaged in... The green and the and the grey, you know, and they were down doing their their low level stuff. They were very difficult to see. So obviously, what what we'd like to do is shoot them in the face from a six thousand foot cap if mm. they were down at low level, or something like that. So you'd have a go at that, but you know, that may not work. So you've got to practice for you know getting in behind them. Um, but their best tactic was what they were trained to do, which is if they saw someone in the rear, is just you know power up and fly as low and as fast as they can, twisting and turning. So very difficult to see them from above or from behind because of the camouflage. Um, would we want to, as an air defender, go down to 100 feet and try and, and do what they're doing? The only advantage in doing that was um, they would smoke mm -hmm. you know, with the, the spay engines, non-reheated spay engines. So when they went over a ridge or something like that, um, you, you'd catch a glimpse of them. But that, yeah. that's all you'd have. And, and I saw you doing a video um, fairly recently with, uh, you know, trying to shoot a Harrier down mm -hmm. from a 14, I think it was, using guns. It's not easy. It's not uh, really it, not easy. Everything goes out the window. Correct. You know, and the F4 radar, yeah, it had a PD radar, but it was very, very raw and that. So, you know, when you're chasing someone and you might have more or less co-speed or something like that, or might have 50 knots overtake on them, it was very difficult to pick them out um, on the PD radar because all of that was buried right near the noise right. of your, your own speed. And obviously, you could go into pulse, but that's going to just flood it out yeah. because um, you're down at low level. So, yeah, tricky. Um, I did have a time out in Cyprus back in the early, about 83, when Operation Pulsator was going on. And we were, all, we were down on uh, the armament practice camp down there in the gunnery pattern and, and the bucks were sent down because there was some stuff going on in Beirut. And so they were good. The Americans were there with us uh, with their carrier. And that's, that's where the F-14 bit came up. And basically they were going to send some buccaneers and fly up um, Beirut high street uh, <laughs> uh, just to, to show a force in there. And we were going to, we were called in and we were mm. going to escort them. So the workup 
for that was was fantastic. You know, they they would uh, bug off somewhere, and then we'd go on cap over Akrotiri, and we'd we'd try and pick them up, and we'd split the cap. You know, you'd have guys up looking down, and you'd have guys down at low level waiting for those smoke trails to yeah. come in as as these guys came in at you know fifty feet over the sea. Yeah. Just one thing to pick you up on. You said you were you were going head on to these guys who were down low, yeah. Angel Six or six thousand feet, and you said you had yeah. a problem picking them up. Sometimes is that purely a technical radar problem? No, the, the in the head sector it wasn't so bad. Okay, um, PD radar because of your mm. closing speeds, any any blip that you got from those targets would be quite high up on the screen, so they'd be away from where the noise is. And the noise is uh, we had a, on the F four. You had a um, like a, a notch, effectively, that uh, was almost a, about equivalent to your, your speed. Yep. So if you were round behind someone, that overtake that you had was, mm -hmm. a, let's say you had 50 knots overtake, that was very, very close to where all the noise was. Mm -hmm. Okay, but if you, if you reversed around and you came at each other head on, then you might have um, 800 knots of closure. Mm -hmm. So his target on the on the the radar screen would be much further right. up and clear. If you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're lucky yeah. lucky enough that all of this, to a good extent, is all modelled in our simulator that we use. So it's all stuff I'm I'm used to hearing from F14 Rios and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, the guys that specialise in it's very good, very good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so what was that? That was about the buck. Excellent. Next, vague question. But what is your favourite <laughs> type of map? What does that do you know what that means? Uh... I'm not, I'm not sure, but you know, I, I did, I did reply a bit cheekily. Well, I wrote it down. I, I said one that's easy to read and can be shown on a TV tab as it is on the paper. You know, going back to what I was talking about with the Harrier guys, who said, "Just make it easy, man," yep. because we have the brain power to cope with something else. You know, down at down at low level. Um, so that's the only way I could really answer that. Now, in the air defence world, I'll be a bit flippant. Um, we didn't used to use the, you know, maps too much. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd flash around at low level. Sure, if you were doing a dedicated navigation route and we weren't out to look for people, then, yeah, you might both have a map and you might both be sharing the navigation. But if we were going out to find somebody, then I'd have my head in the radar and it would be the, the pilot's responsibility. Uh, he may or may not have a map. Uh, it depends how well he knows the area. That. But most of our time was spent, you know, up top. So maps, uh, you know, we never really did too much planning on the air defence side. So maps were a little bit of a an, a non-entity. That's that's the wrong word. We we didn't use them as much as say the ground, the muds would use them because yeah. they did lots and lots of planning. Now when I was on the F three, and we started to do what we call Comeo, the the combined air operations. We started to embed ourselves in a formation of tornadoes, GR4s, and we provided with our radar, we provided a heads up, and with the JTIDs, the, the Link 16 that we had, we could give them a lot of information. But to be able to do those kind of sorties, we had to be involved in a lot of the the mission planning, and that was a real wake-up call for air defenders. You know, give an air defender a map, and it's you know it's like a, a seven-year-old. You give him a washing-up cloth, and go, "What the hell is this for?" <laughs> <laughs> were, you, were you following those GRs visually then, or were you kind of on your own but in the same uh, A little bit of both, actually. We might mm. split the air defence asset. You might have you know, some high up behind you uh, so they wouldn't see. But yes, essentially, those who, who were embedded you know, within the formation or, or just a little bit of bubble to the sides, we'd basically been pa painting the picture. 
and we would tell them, right, you know, threat from right two o'clock, 30 miles, and, and they would hoof off to the left, mm -hmm. okay, to, you know, to try, and we would go after them. So we were just trying to divert the incoming uh, attack and let them go off and do their business. It was great fun. It really was. And we had some massive Cameo formations, but boy, it, it did take a lot of planning. And, that, and that's when the air defense guys had to start, really start using maps. Yeah. Roger. Yeah, maps. It's... it's... Uh, we've recently done some what we call MILSIM, so a realistic look at using relatively old school pre kind of Link 16 navigation, yeah. uh, basically using maps, map and compass, and all that stuff. And, yeah. and because of the question that, that spurned it on, it, and a right and a question, because a lot of the people that watch us are from the F 22 Raptor period you know, yep. the, the yep. millennials, why would you have a map? Why would you have a navigator? What a waste of space when I can just click on my SA screen and I know where everything is, right? But they don't understand that coming from the 70s, 80s, and kind of into the 90s, I suppose, that things were very different. Tornado pilots and buccaneer pilots and, sorry, uh, you know, navigators. Things were very different. And we, we kind of threw ourselves in the deep end and, and took all of the tech away, everything away, apart from a map, compass, a stopwatch. And had to fly complex missions with time on target with multiple guy groups, you know, 20, 30, 40 guys. And we, yeah. we're lucky to get some actual tornado pilots and, and uh, navs to come and help us. But, God, that was a wake-up call to, yeah. So I have I've massive respect well, now for you talking about those, those big groups. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, that was the way in our day that you, you tested somebody out. You, you tested their metal. You put pressure on them. You know, you go from the jet provost to to the hawk and you're now flashing around at 420 knots but you still got to use a map and a stopwatch mm -hmm. and it was a way of um you know putting pressure on a guy to see if he he had what it took could he still you know get to the target on time and etc etc that's all replaced now by you know inertial first uh, but that also had a you know they might run away by a couple of miles or something like that and now you've got the gps and the and the gps and the inertial tied together so much more sophisticated system so all of that how that difficulty of doing low-level navigation and everything like that that gave us all issues has now gone away but it has been replaced by other things there's you know there's many more things that you now need to do in a copy there's much more information coming in um, that replaces the pressure of working on so it's a good job that you don't have to do that because yeah. I don't think you could do it and the, and the thing about um, you know whizzos and nabs and you know many pilots you know sing, especially single seat guys will will go oh yeah I'd, yeah okay, yeah, it might be useful having an extra pair of eyes, but I'd rather have more fuel. Mm. But when, you, when you've got a dedicated two-seat platform like the Buck or the, the Tornado, you know, or the Phantom, you cannot fly or operate that airplane without two seats. Each of you has a specific job. You know, it's like a rally driver. You know, a, yeah. rally, a rally driver, you know, the, the driver cannot do without the guy in the right-hand seat. You know, you can't fly up 50 feet and do everything else because you'll kill yourself. It's yeah. easier when you've got someone else who's sharing the load. All of that has been replaced by very expensive um, machines like Raptor and Typhoon, where you know, you've know you got to pay lots of money to uh, have machines do a lot of that work for you. Not saying it's any easier, it isn't, because it's been replaced, like I said, by other pressures. Um, but yes, it does take away some of the uh, the horsepower that, that the, the Wizzo or the NAM used to, to cope with in that team. Yeah. Mondra. Very good. Okay. Uh, right. Uh, I mean, literally joining on to that question now, how hard is it to become a weapon system officer? And what's the process to becoming one? I mean, is it actually a thing anymore? I mean, weapon, they're all computers now. Weapon system officers are all, are all yeah, computerized. Yeah, they're, they're, 
there are no wizzos or navs in the in the air force anymore uh, we obviously as you know we have no mm. tornadoes and uh, even the transport side they don't have navs in there anymore i don't i don't think so you know for the royal air force we don't need them anymore uh, obviously in the states they have their beautiful f15 e pluses um so they still need it uh ksa you know um saudi arabia they're still flying tornado uh, but the process uh, was the same amongst all the air forces you know you uh you went to do your aptitude testing you might have been you might have been selected to go pilot training you go pilot you might have made it you might not uh, a lot of um, pilots who didn't make it became wizzos i was one of them you know it hurt at the time especially as i got to right to the end of the jet provost phase and and then i couldn't get any further so i was uh, offered wizzo which is what I wanted because I wanted to fly fast jet. A lot of wizzos, um, you know, wear glasses when they first come in, so they'll never get into the front seat mm -hmm. anyway. Um, so you go through the selection. If you're selected to go NAV or wizzo training, then you, it's very, it's very similar to the pilot. You start off on a, you know, a, a low performance airplane, and you gradually go higher and higher. Um, you get split out amongst um, chosen for transport. Helos, if they take, you know, non-pilots in helos, but not many of those anymore. Uh, or you go to the, the fast jet twin-seater. But it's it's uh, becoming a little bit of a rare breed now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, the next one. Uh, no idea, but let's try it. I probably know you. <laughs> Can you explain the rules of NAV union dinners? I never quite understood them and got fined a lot. Okay. You're going to have to pick that apart from us. Uh, for us well my my reply was uh, you're probably overcome by the excitement the occasion and, and maybe adversely affected by alcohol but basically mm -hmm. naval pilot or squadron reunions is basically ah. is where you all get together you know from your old squadrons right. and um you know have a bit of a chat and and several drinks a bit of a laugh and um yeah if you do naughty things you'll get fined right <laughs> that's quite funny so <laughs> how long do these how long do these kind of go on so is it so once the nav guys have moved is this after they've kind of retired from being navs not necessarily but usually yes i mean you you can get pilot reunion pilot union dinners nav union or you get squadrons you know where anyone can pitch up anyone who was on the squadron you know engineers mm -hmm. anybody can can come in as well yeah okay so it's like the kind of thing you do you have school reunions don't you class it's, reunions. So it's exactly the same thing cap okay. yes yeah, it's, it's just an opportunity to get but you know, get together and talk with the old mates and, yeah. and have a bit of a laugh. But, yeah, uh, but you're a lot were a bit of a nightmare when you get together. So. No, 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 of course no. not. No, it's like the priesthood, mate. <laughs> yes, indeed. Right, uh, seven. What is the one moment that stands out as being your closest encounter? Everyone has one closest encounter, an O F word moment during your career. Ooh, uh, yeah. I mean, I've. I've kind of had several. I've, I've never had to eject, mm -hmm. fortunately. A couple of times I thought I might have to, but um, after the Falklands War, um, you know, fairly soon after the Falklands War, they sent the F4s down to Port Stanley, and they had a temporary runway there. Uh, I went. I went down shortly after that had been put together for my sort of five-month tour down there. And the, the first trip when you go down there is um, was a familiar trip. So I flew with a. I was only a flying a, a young flying officer when I went down there. So. I flew with my flight commander, a squadron leader, and you just go and do a mill, which is, let's just go out, I'll show you around the island, because, you know, it's only about 120 meters, 120 miles wide. If you went up to 30, 40,000, you could see the whole of the Falkland yeah. Island. 
wasn't that big. So we'd just hoof around and, you know, go and say hello to the, the people on the radars and look at a few ships and just generally show you around. And so we did, we did that for about uh, an hour. And then he said, right, off, we'll go back home now. He said, but what we'll do is we'll just go past, um, there's a, uh, a radio mast where a, uh, a radio guy sits and does some of his stuff. But we normally go and fly by and, and you know, rock the wings and just say hello because he's out there on his own. So bang, we went smashing down at 500 knots plus over the top of this mast and we there's a massive big bang and a huge vibration oh, no. when we went over the mast and i thought like he did you know that oh moment we've mm -hmm. hit it that's what we thought and we lost lost an engine and that and the problem with the falklands down there at the time is that there weren't many areas where you could safely eject because they still hadn't cleared all of the mines oh, and everything no. like that so you couldn't guarantee you wouldn't land on a mine Anyway, we had two engines, thankfully, so we, we shut it down, um, went back, uh, managed to land in okay, and, and the runway was a short runway because it was made of AM2 matting, you know, like a jigsaw puzzle mm -hmm. put together, and you, you took the rag every time anyway, so that, that wasn't a problem. Uh, and we were told, actually, it was just uh, a coincidence that at the point at which we went over the mast, one of the combustion chambers in the oh. right-hand end just exploded. <laughs> <laughs> but we genuinely thought we are in big trouble. We, we've hit that mast and that wow. we had a sinking feeling, but, but there we go. Um, I've had a twin tire burst. Wow. On the How does that yeah. happen? Yeah. Well, came, just landed back with my, uh, my F4 pilot and he landed a little bit heavy, uh, on one side and he burst the left hand tire, which obviously caused the aircraft to yaw a lot on the runway. So he smashed in a lot of opposite brake and everything on on that and that burst the the right hand tire as well so we were going down the runway on the disc brakes of course you know from the outside there were sparks and everything mm -hmm. and fire and all that and air traffic controller going you're on fire you're on fire you're on fire so that was a little bit of a hairy moment and of course your hand was on the the ejection seat because we were starting to veer off the runway mm -hmm. and we didn't know whether we we're gonna have to pull the handle we had a conversation and it looked like the fact that we were on the discs brakes they were scouring into the runway and they were kind of creating its own channel yeah which stopped us from drifting across so we decided to stay with it yeah they had to go and fill the runway in afterwards because there was literally you know two mm. two massive score marks as we uh traveled down the runway on on discs so yeah lots of things like that um supersonic with another f going part i think it was another f4 doing air combat in Deci mamano we got a little bit close these things happened we were both happy to be going supersonic and you know, the Phantom is a big, big, tough aircraft, but we both felt it. And when we came down, we both had um, bits of the skin were peeling off the, the fin and all manner of uh, things. Yeah. So, you know, so you can these things happen. But you can feel the shockwave from the other aircraft then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. External fuel tank came came apart. One of the uh, the bolts that fixed it. We couldn't figure out what all the vibration was. Engine check. Everything was all right. So you know, you slow down and you make a long, a long trek back home. And um, we couldn't figure it out. And when we landed, the engineers looked at it and said, "Oh, one of the bolts holding the uh, one of the uh, underwing fuel tanks had sheared off. So it's just the thing was just vibrating. That was what was causing it. Yeah. Um, your story of going down the runway and veering off." almost hitting the grass that's pretty much a daily event for me because of how i fly but um i mean it does it to spawn an interesting question uh, again like you come said at the beginning in my game slash sim it doesn't matter i'm happy to crash and blow up and just get another one but for you if is there a procedure 
if for aeroplanes, if something's gone wrong on the runway, either taking off or landing, and you know you're going to hit the grass, is there a procedure to bail or stick with it or wait for something? I think it all, a lot of it will depend on the speed at mm. which you are going off, and it then becomes, you know, an individual's crew pilot's discretion type decision yeah, as to as to whether you want to go. Either of you can elect to eject, um, and depending on how you've got the uh, the connection between the two ejection mm. seats set up, either. You know the front if the front pilot goes the the wizard will go with him or it can be separate and that that depends on on what you agree between the two of you right okay yeah uh, but uh, yeah there's there's no fixed rule so i think it would it would depend on speed if you just landed you know at a 150 155 and you were veering off uh, then you'd probably go for a, an ejection no idea. Yeah. When is the decision made about uh, when you take off? I'm guessing when you decide how the ejection system is linked. Yes, it's part of the uh, pre-takeoff checks. Yeah, right. very interesting. Okay, right. Uh, another one that requires some background. Question for Nigel. Backstory required. Are you still a gold member of the Cheese Room? <laughs> Fifi Croissant sends her warmest <laughs> regards. So that's okay. We best let you fill us in on that one. Yeah, I had to smile about that when I when I was in. Uh, KSA, sorry, KSA, in Kingdom of Saudi Arabia uh, in 2012 to 2017. And we were introducing uh, a brand new training system to the Saudis. And they'd purchased, one of the aircraft they'd purchased was the PC-21. And they'd also purchased the uh, the new Hawk, the, to them, the T-165. So we were implementing that. So we had a lot of the pilots who were flying uh, on the PC-9 had to convert to the PC-21. And I made a very good friend of mine, a, a Canadian pilot, who incidentally, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me telling you, uh, he joined the Canadian Air Force as a wizard, as a nav. Yeah. And he moved across to a pilot, which comes, there's a question about this uh, sort of thing later on. Uh, and we became very good friends, um, indeed. And we had the same sort of uh, taste in some of our music, which was, you know, sort of 70s, 80s, hence the, the cheese room, you know, <laughs> uh, whatever. Uh, and because he was Canadian, uh, he spoke French as well. So, hence the dog was called Fifi Croissant, or that's what I, <laughs> that's what I called her anyway. So, there we are. So, Savvy is name is Mike Savard. Very if good. you're listening, Mike, good to hear from you. There you go. Very good. Okay. On to the meat, on to the ordnance. Uh, what was your <laughs> favourite munition to work with and why? This is going to be interesting. Well, yeah, be, being an air defender, we don't have the... When I was flying, we obviously didn't have the choice of munitions compared to, uh, you know, a tornado or, or even the, the bucks and that really. So, you know, we carried, uh, well, on the F4, it was uh, winders, golfs to start with, uh, and um, Skyflash, or Sparrow, sorry, Sparrow. Um, I would say my favourite one, though, was um, before I joined my Phantom Operational Conversion Unit. So I came out of Finningley, did my... Uh, nav training at the time uh, was going phantoms but because the pilots always got the opportunity to go and and do a tactical course on a fast jet trainer the wizos and well the navs didn't have so normally they were sent direct to an ocu you know so they they might be going from a uh, a jet provost or a uh, an hs125 our low level trainer learning how to do radar navigation at low level and the next jet they go in is a you know a massive big f4 so you'd normally share, you know, partner up with a, a trainee pilot. 
But those guys, because they'd had that extra, you know, Valley or, and, and or Chivener, they always came with a bit more experience and, than, than the Wizzo. So the, the powers that be said, look, why can't we send the Wizzos on the Hawk as well? And so that's what we did. It was a little bit informal at the time when we went through. We were told, right, go and spend, you know, six months at RAF Bordy or RAF Chivener and just get as much flying as, as you can. And that's what we did. We used to do what we called, you know, sandbagging. You know, hang around the ops desk. Is there a trip going? Yes, there is. Right. Get in the back and off you go. So whatever they were doing is what we would go and do. And, and on a Friday afternoon, quite often, they would have, you know, Friday afternoon war games where the instructors were able to, um, you know, not do any student flying and go off and, and fly against their mates in F4s and do some fill. So we got access to that, which was fantastic fun. Didn't have a clue what was going on at the time, <laughs> you know, being really raw, but, you know, seeing an F4 in full burner just go over the top of your canopy mm-hmm. um, was, was great. Anyway, to come back to the question, um, one of the last things I did at RAF Broadly at the time, which was attack weapons course for the, for the Hawk, was um, they were firing off the last of their SNEB rockets. So they said, okay, here's half a dozen jets, here's a whole load of SNEB rockets, go to the range, fire them off. And, and then we're not using them anymore. And the thing about the SNEB, of course, is, is that uh, you can see it. So when you fire it, it's a very visual thing as, as well as feeling it. Whereas when you fire a gun, you can feel it, but you can't really see it. And when you fire a missile, you know, you get a, a little bit of a clunk as it comes off. You get a, a smoke trail for a couple of seconds and then there's nothing there apart from hopefully a big explosion at the end of it. Uh, so the SNEB rockets was fun because, um, you know, big flames, lots of noise and everything. And you could almost see them impact into the ground. But I would say that the um, probably when we changed from AIM-9 Golfs, which was a rear hemisphere winder, to the AIM-9L, which was a total hemisphere weapon, that, that, was, a good, that was a good change. So I'd have to say from a professional point of view, you know, the change from Golf to Lima. Roger. What were, were these good. SNEB rockets replaced with a contemporary rocket or...? Uh, that's a good question, Cat. I don't know what they did at uh, after we after we did that because we fired them off and it was towards the end of our course and then we were off and you know F fours were was the only thing on our mind. Um, I'm trying to, th- you know, I can't answer that question because no. I'm aware that ordnance does go out of date and other guys yeah. I've spoken to say, "Yep, get on the range and, and use them before they're out of date." Because yeah, interesting, very good. Oh. <laughs> Okay, let's push on then. Uh, Nige, even though sensor integration and task automation has resulted in fewer cockpits, uh, uh, WSOs, as we've talked about, do you think the current push for multi-role do-it-all fighters could lead to, hold, more WSO slash pilot crew fighters? Hmm. I don't, personally, I don't think they will design a brand new aeroplane uh, that will have a, a pilot Wizzo in it. I mean, we're now getting into the era of, you know, loyal wingman drones, uh, AI, which we can come back to a little bit later on, one of the other questions. Very capable mission avionics. Uh, the nearest thing to it might be the uh, the new F-15 EX, yep. um, you know, which is just a derivative of the F-15E. I would certainly, if I was a young man now, would love to go and fly in that aeroplane, that's the place um, to but be. that's not that's you, you could argue that's not a new aeroplane. Um, so no, I, I don't think there'll be a, a new two seater. Uh, I do know that at one stage, you know, uh, Saab Gripen 
were looking at a, a dedicated two-seat aircraft where they basically had a, a tactical commander, tactical commander in the in the back seat, um, not necessarily a, a Wizzell or NAV. Um, uh, and I think that's something to do with the fact that you know you can now start to think about taking drones on your wing and everything like that, and it may be you know just too much for mm. the pilot in the front, or you've actually taken your you, you know your tactical view, your commander of what's going on with the amount of information that's available to them to these days. You know, rather be on the ground, you take them with you up in the air. Uh, now I, I I've heard no more about that. Um, so I, I think the answer to the question is uh, no. No, I don't think so. More jump? Okay. What is maple flag exercise and any interesting stories from red flag? Uh, maple flag were, is um, effectively the equivalent of red flag, but it, it, is, it is smaller, I think, in overall size. But red flag was normally a, you know, a yearly thing if you were lucky. Um, so I think they introduced the maple flag, A, because the Canadian Air Forces also locally wanted the ability to do this kind of thing. And of course, they got major airspace up there. Um, but the sort of premise of it is, is effectively the same as red flag. So we used to go to maple flag and you get all the different air forces from around the world would come in. And, um, you know, they had a massive airspace as well. I, I remember going off and doing one, one sortie uh, where we flew around for an hour at low level, didn't see anybody. No human, you know, signs of humanity, no houses or anything, you know, just massive, massive place. Um, but you did the same kind of war stuff as you did uh, in Red Flag. Uh, interesting stories around Red Flag. Um, I think the most interesting Red Flag was when I was on Five Squadron. Uh, we've got, um, we were one of the squadrons that had Link 16 in there. Yeah. Um, and that was, uh, that was an interesting time. Because that obviously we had Skyflash at the time. I I didn't fly an F3. I left before you know they went to Amram and Asram. So we were Skyflash, and we, therefore we were tied to you know maintaining a lock yeah. on on the aircraft you wanted to shoot at. Um, but when the Link 16 came in, it, you know it started off being a piece of kit where you know we could talk to each other and send messages to each other. You know, so if we went off and did some night flying or something like that, and one of the guys went. US or ran out of fuel before someone else is, you could message him and say, okay, you know, I'll have a, I'll have a brown beer, please. I'll have a yellow <laughs> beer, you know, that kind, of, that kind of thing. But it gradually got more and more sophisticated and, and what it could do. And we, you know, with our, our clever qualified weapons instructors, the QIs, you know, they, they were the, um, you know, the really good guys, the smart guys on the squadron. They were, you know, you could argue that they were some of the best at what they did. They started developing tactics for it. So when we went to Red Flag at, at one time, um, we were using the Link 16 more as a, a weapon, effectively, because we had yeah. to, because, you know, you, you can't go up a, against an AMRAM with a Skyflash. So examples of that, we would, you know, to save fuel, you know, rather than, you know, go and join the, uh, join the fight half an hour after it started, you know, as a, as a reinforcement. Sometimes you could go up there and you'd be hanging around 20 minutes waiting for that fight to finish, you know, before you could join in. So we would actually not take off. We'd sit on the, the side of the runway, radars all on standby, but the Link 16 up. And therefore we'd get all of the air picture from the E3s yep. and our own tornadoes. So we could pick the time that we left, that we actually took off, to coincide with when they were just bugging out and we were going in. So it was quite an efficient 
way of doing it. That was that was one area. Uh, another area was we were able to try and effect their essay, especially against a single seat guy. You know, come in close together. You know, split up. Uh, start off at 40,000, rapidly go down to 10,000. And that you could argue, but you're destroying your own essay. But we didn't because we, we knew exactly where everybody was. But from his point of view, looking at targets that were going left, right, center and splitting off, we were just trying to destroy his essay a little bit because we had to offset the fact that we couldn't get close enough because he had AMRAMs. So we were developing a lot of tactics that way. Uh, one of the other ones was, you know, we would sit in the valleys and just wait. We'd get the picture from above. We were told that there, you know, there might be some F-15Es coming through or something like that at low level. And we'd, we'd hide in the valleys and then we'd get the picture from above and sneak in behind them. And at the last minute, switch on radars or maybe not if you're going for a winder shot. Uh, and so we got some success with that. Now, is that a valid tactic in war? Probably not. That was probably a scenario that was, you know, there to be used in in red flag but we did surprise a lot of the people out there particularly the americans as to how we were using initially link 16 because they were using it just really just to see where their their wingmen were Interesting. so they were surprised at what we were at what we were doing and and it was fantastic and we had our own debate you know in in the crew room okay the question was if what would you rather have amram and no link 16 or keep your link 16 but and skyflash but have no amram and you had to think about it, to be honest, because the Link 16 gave us so much more SA. Obviously, the better thing would be to have them all, and that's eventually what they got. But but that was after my time. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and how powerful uh, Link 16 SA <clears throat> is for well any kind of fight, and how it's changed yeah. the fight. I mean, just on our uh, virtual battlefield, we had obviously DTS goes back for years, decades. Link 16, in its proper, truest, you know, um, most usefulness, has only actually been around for about a year now, maybe even slightly less. And in, since then, the virtual battlefield, how people fight, interact with each other and plan has changed so much. Everything's yeah. so much more deadly now with, with Link 16 because everyone knows so much. Um, it's, it's really interesting. And to the point where there are you use information against others to try and, like you said, reduce people's essay, fool them, play tricks on them, stuff like that. None of this was possible back, you know, back in the kind of good old days for us. Uh, in uh, So it's interesting how that's kind of followed what you guys. Yeah. yeah, and it was all in the back seat in the F3, um, you know, along with the, the radar. So, you know, it upped your game, that was for sure. It gave you another piece of equipment that you could use tactically. And, uh, you know, at, at, at times it was it was hard work. You know, it was hard work. It was great, but um, yeah, there's a lot of information coming at you. Yeah. Not sure. Okay, very good. Let's move on. Was the navigator's training in the old days much different than now? And what were the the stepping stones to uh, understand to get into it? So obviously, I mean, there there isn't really any navigator's training now. But I mean, the pilot navigating training, navigation training. Uh, well, you see, as as we said earlier on, a lot of it's been replaced now. You know. Um, by automation, you know, following a a green line, you know, that's that's relatively easy mm -hmm. to do when the system will automatically automatically steer you anywhere. You don't have to, you know, think about it. There are no errors in the system. You assume that the GPS and and everything is going to to work correctly. Um, I'll tell you a little story. When I went to the Harrier OCU and you know was speaking to them about developing our cockpit in the PC twenty one, 
um, they were they were saying that um, they got so used to buying with a GPS stroke IN, you know, strapped together, so it's very accurate. That uh, they never they never actually and it never failed, so they never practiced it failing until actually one day it did, and mm. it got the pilot in a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble. So they changed their their syllabus to include specific sorties where you know the GPS has failed and the IN is starting to degrade you know so can you still make it you know what what do you have to do uh, in those circumstances so so that was quite interesting but I think the level of sophistication now and and uh, reliability has, has gone up so much that um, you know that traditional way of assessing someone or putting pressure on someone to fly you know map and stopwatch you don't need that anymore and to be honest if you can't guarantee that you'll get your weapon on the target these days you know and there's a risk of collateral damage to civilians quite rightly or somewhere then you know if you've got a degraded system if you can't guarantee you're going to hit the target correctly then you don't you know you come home it's interesting how much how yeah. changed from carpet Absolutely. bombing <laughs> and yeah oh yeah i mean we did in the f4 we did you know one one of one of the sorties we used to do was low-level high speeds, day and night. And so you'd be, effectively, you would be, a target would run in at uh, about 580 to 600 knots, another F4. And it's simulating, you know, a, a large Russian missile or a, an incoming low-level strike of an SU-24 or something, you know, some very high-speed mm. target uh, doing at night. So that... That was quite complex because you had to make sure that, you know, you got your, your turns in. Everything had to be done on the numbers. And with the F4 radar, you know, when you you looked at the raw radar, you, were, you weren't getting any information on, you know, what, what's his heading height and speed. The way we used to uh, discern what the heading was, was, well, if it, if it stays at a constant angle, you're on a collision so you can work it out. But otherwise, you'd put it on the nose. And if it drifts, you'd go, OK, I'll call it a 150, mm -hmm. you know left, right, or right, left, and make an assessment, and then you drive yourself out, get your displacement. Because on a high-speed target, you don't want to come and hit someone nose-to-nose. Because -nose. if you miss, okay, then your turning circle at high speed is quite large. And by the time you've got around the corner, him at 600 knots, he's gone, and you'll never catch him again. And that, So you come with displacement, you know, so you can, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, they may do that these days. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure. You know, we did high level supersonic uh, as well going up against you know 1.2 so up at 50 40 50,000 feet we used to practice in the simulator um, Concorde profile you know similar could the question was could we attack a Concorde and you'd hit it in the face if you could you'd, instead of firing one missile you'd always fire a pair just in case but if you could you catch it could you go around the corner and catch Concorde if you didn't shoot him in the face and the answer is no you, you couldn't do it wow yeah so we, we, we used to do all of that, that kind of stuff. Yeah, interesting. Um, on both the F4 and the F3, but of course with the F3, with a Fox Hunter radar, like, you know, like a Typhoon, like modern radars, uh, you get a lot more information now, you know, even in trackball scan, you know, you get, you, even, even without that, you know, you, you're getting ranges, you're getting uh, heading, track crossing angles, you're getting speeds, displacement will, will automatically read out for you. And that, yeah, so, different you have to be good at arithmetic in the f4 that's for sure you have to do it all mandrolically work on, out on the spot quick mental arithmetic quick yeah absolutely one in 60 rule if you didn't know that then you were doomed doomed <laughs> <laughs>
The um, yeah, that's one thing I've learned in DCS. I mean, if you, if you, again, if you if you get rid of your your super new systems, your Link 16, get rid of your 40 mile all aspect AMRAM, uh, high speed interceptions are incredible. It, it, they're an art form. It, it sounds really easy. Fly towards the guy, get a sidewinder on him. Done. You've got to do so much planning, so much geometric planning uh, to well, get if, your your yeah. guy in the right place. If someone says to you, um, you know, I want you to do a high speed intercept, he's coming in at 600 knots at 250 feet, and I want you to uh, roll out behind him at one mile. That's not that's not easy. No, nope. because, you know, you've got to be very precise. And if and in the F4, if you if you cocked it up and you, let's say you, instead of five miles displacement laterally, you came in with, say, two. So you had to haul it around the corner. You didn't want to do high, high AOA turns mm -hmm. in an F4 because it was prone to flicking and that. Yeah. So you had to get your numbers correct and that. So we used to take great pride in, you know, if we could roll out at half a mile, then, you know, the beers were on you. Yeah, it was, good. it was good. It was good, but as you say, very precise. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Right, you were involved in live QRA of Russian aircraft like bears and others. Very exciting. Can you walk us through an intercept and what are the steps to follow? I'm not sure what you can share, but Let's see what you said. Uh, yeah, well, um, I don't think anything has, has really changed between, you know, when I was doing it and, let's say, a, a typhoon on QRA. Uh, obviously, you got to your, you came off your operational conversion unit, uh, you joined a squadron, and then you had to do another workup. You had to become what they call combat ready. Um, so you basically learned the airplane and learned some of the systems and learned how to fight it a bit. Now you had to do the operational bit. But before you could go and sit QRA, certainly when I was up at uh, 43 Squadron at Lucas, you had to do your combat ready workup. Once you got that stamp in your logbook, then you could go and sit QRA. And of course, that, that was really, really exciting. Um, and I do remember that when I was a, a junior nav up there on my first time for the first couple of weeks in, in what we called the Q shed, the QRA shed where, where we lived and where the, the aircraft were hangered. We always had to be kitted up with our, you know, our immersion suits and everything, even mm. in the summer, mm. because going up north, it can be really, really cold in the water. And uh, I used to sleep in it like many other newbies used to do. It always used to amuse the, you know, the more experienced guys because uh, you had to be ready to go within 10 minutes. And, you know, we were scared of, of not making that. So we used to sleep mm. in all of our kit until we realized that actually you could do it. And that. so, you know, there was a, a, a real learning experience. And then it was a, a, really, it was a case of um, luck, you know, whether you actually got launches, how many launches you got, and whether there was a, a Rusky on, on the end of it. Um, some guys did a, you know, two and a half, three year tour, got none. Wow. One flight commander. Uh, what we normally used to do was if you got 10 bears, you got a 10 bear badge. I don't know if you've heard of that. No. You know, so that, that was one to go for. But as I said, it was just a matter of luck. One flight commander got zero, you know, so we, unstitched the one on his badge and he got a zero bear badge whereas other guys you know they every time they went on queue you know they, they'd get a launch i think i got 11 in the end um very exciting uh we you know lots of kit and that was a two-man thing that definitely you know we we had to go up there uh get very close particularly at night and if uh the bears or bison or whatever it was didn't have the lights on and it was a dark night you couldn't see them so obviously you had to sneak up on on radar um, at one one time, and this shows you how old I, I am. Then this new new sort of thing called a portable video recorder, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and the uh, the spooks came up 
one day, you know, the intelligence people who call them spooks for obvious reasons. And they, they briefed us up and said, right, we've got this new piece of kit. This is how it works. And we want you to take it in the, in the backseat because the pilot was flying, so we wouldn't be able to do any of that kind of stuff. Uh, and we in particularly want to look at the bears. We want to know more information about why they can fly as fast as they can and their turboprop technology. So we want you to video it, but also the video recorder has got a sound you know, microphone on it. And we want you to get as close as you can safely because we want to hear what goes on. And we did. We managed to, on that sortie that I had the video camera, we managed to get close enough to this bear videoed it and you could actually hear the engines they right. they sort of throb a little bit um so we got as much video as we could and you'd had nikon cameras very expensive nikon cameras and you took lots of pictures of you know so the the spoots could work out were these aircraft changing new aerials and things like that but um when we got back um they they met us and thank you very much we'll take that and we never saw them again you know we, we didn't hear what had gone on what they'd found uh but that was exciting too. We had one launch where they they came north of Norway, so the Norwegians intercepted them in their F-16s, and instead of going through the Iceland Faroes Gap, they turned left and came down between sort of uh, Sweden and the UK and kept coming south into the North Sea. So F-15s from Susterberg, I think it was, they got launched as well. And uh, they even got we got launched, and they even got far enough south that they turned right heading west and we think they were doing an attack on Newcastle, a simulated weapon attack. Mm. So they got close enough south that even the Lightning managed to launch himself wow. up. And the Lightning said to me, I haven't got much time up here because they didn't carry any fuel. Mm. Can you please take a picture of me? Because they never got much chance to do that. So in the picture, I think I had F-15, Lightning and F-4 wow. all, all around the bear. Yeah, exciting. And then they, they poked off and when they did their Iceland Pharaohs gap thing as well, yeah. I've got so many follow-up questions. Uh, first, did you use your own radar or were you reliant on a ground-based radar for the intercept? Uh, no, norm normally you got vectored. Uh, you got vector and, and a height. Picking them up uh, quite often, Yeah, I mean, they, they had intelligence, obviously, probably from some ground radars mm. that they were coming by. But in obviously, in order to go... To get the information you wanted, which which is what the door numbers were, and anything else, you had to get in close. Uh, and we could do that. We could do that with our radars. Yeah. If you can see them visually, you would turn the radar off because we don't want them looking at, at us either. But obviously, at night when it's really dark and they will turn their lights out and and whatever. Uh, yeah, you just you just do a stern attack, sneak up on them, and uh, get as close as you can. Fascinating. Yeah. This 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 idea of getting really close. These kind of headbutts of getting really close and flying in formation with them and I mean I've, yeah. just, I've just been I'm looking at various kind of historical pictures while you're talking and the first one was a, a, a an old phantom inter intercepting a bear over Iceland where it did a roll barrel roll around the bear uh, spurred on by the bear pilots or the bear crew and then the next picture was an F-22 Raptor uh, headbutting uh, another bear and it just shows this thing's been going on for decades this, oh. this idea I mean what are these bears doing well, I think a lot of the time they're, you know, they're int, they're obviously int gathering. Mm. Um, maybe they're looking at Navy, maybe they're doing some sort of, you know, submarine stuff. Maybe they're just looking and testing us, probing to see, you know, can it we happens. still afford our air defense? Sure. You know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, sometimes we get a hint that they're coming. Uh, I, I once did a five and a half hour 
sortie because you know with tanking and that as well tanker went home and we were we were more than 200 miles away from from the west coast of scotland over near the iceland pharaohs gap and the thing about the f4 the fg1s that we had up at lucas is we had no hf yeah uh, and we had no in because they were all in the fgr2 wow. we had a thing called a um uh, an API airborne position indicator and uh, I mean that that was really quite old and basically you put your position in on the ground or anytime you liked if you knew it and you fed in what the wind was and you know the cogs and the gears and the little mouse inside would you know run around a wheel and and it would give you a an air position but it was only as good as the you know the wind you put in the position you put in and the wear of the gears so to be honest it used to run away like nobody's so how, how did that work was, was that not in based then or was it no doppler based no, or no nothing at all you just put some parameters in and obviously it had a feeding of uh speed yeah speed and direction and stuff yeah and direction um, Good lord but it wasn't very reliable so we were there with and um, being you know over 200 miles away we had yeah. nothing on the scope uh, no hf so we couldn't talk to anyone the tanker had gone home and um we just thought, well, we can. The only thing we can do is stay on cap until we hit bingo and we go home and that. But you know, that was the time when you used to think to yourself, if we had a, a problem now and we had yep. to screwed get the aircraft in that, you wondered. You know, no one would necessarily quite know where we were unless your point is made, Cap, that ground radars were looking at us all the time, mm. even though they couldn't talk to us. Yeah. Really, yeah, but it, it concentrated your mind, that's for sure. Interesting that they, I mean, if you'd said, you know, if you were 20 years older and you said you were doing that in the 60s, I could understand maybe. But for you, when you were flying these things, I, you know, I would have assumed that they would have had super duper iron systems. Everyone would know, you know, exactly where you are. That's no, quite you, you, could argue, you could argue that Northern QRA used to get most of the launches. So why wouldn't we have had the, the aircraft that had HF mm -hmm. and an IN? And that uh, and that would be a fair question to ask. We asked it sometimes, but you know, it wasn't. And you you did what you did. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. But okay. Uh, right. We must push on then. What was your first fast jet experience, and did you enjoy it? Uh, first fast jet was um, flying the Hawk at RAF forty tack weapons. As I said, when we were sandbagging, as now it's going fool your boots, guys. Get as much as you can. So that was really my first fast jet, although that was a jet trainer. Um, but my first trip was obviously in, in the F-4. Uh, went to the OCU and your first trip, um, like when I was in the Falklands, was a FAM familiarization trip. Uh, and basically you, you got in the jet, no one was expecting much of you. You did a max reheat climb, which was fun, even in a F-4. Uh, obviously for people like me, it was the first time I'd ever experienced mm -hmm. anything like that. And you just try and hang on and um you know keep your mind in the same week that you took off in <laughs> that, that was the first one and then you know and then you're on into uh all of your ocu conversion yeah okay so i did enjoy it next question is a fun question not to be taken too seriously but what is your all-time favorite aircraft that you would love to take for a spin in a dream world and why is it any time any type of aircraft just oh i like that plane there um Ooh, 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 ooh. Well, having flown in an F-16, which was a yeah. glorious trip, it was only one trip. Um, can I tell you a story about that? Please do. Yeah, I was uh, when I was at Finningley as an instructor, we had a thing called a GWAM, G-W-A-M, which is General War Report, General War Appointment NAV, and you had a same for a pilot. So what it meant was that to keep your hand in, 
you could go back to an F4 squadron and do a little bit of flying, you know, twice a year for a week or so. So if the bloom went up and they required you to stop training, you know, navigators and get in a squadron aircraft, you still had the skill set more or less to go and do it. So uh, one, one July, I went back to Lucas and I was sat in the crew room going through the manuals again and the phone rang and um, someone answered it and they, they turned around and they said, anyone want to go and fly in an F-16 tomorrow with the Dutch general? Colonel, in fact, he, he was. <laughs> and no one answered. I looked around and thought, you're joking, aren't you? So I put my hand up and they went, okay, tick, go over there, get all your gear sorted out and be there tomorrow when they tell you. And it was a four ship of F-16s and I was flying with the colonel who was number four. And um, he had a problem, which he admitted was his at the end. He, he messed up the uh, inertial lineup, so we had to catch them up. Oh, but I've always wondered why Americans and, and that look so, particularly F-16 guys, literally look so cool when they get out of their aircraft. Mm -hmm. It's because their air conditioning system works on ground power. So as soon as you get in the aircraft, it right. the it's ready to go. It's ready to go. It is cool as anything and you just didn't sweat and in that lovely 30 degree you know reclined seat and you had a side stick control and because i've done pilot training you know up to a point I, I i could fly that wasn't that wasn't an issue and it was fun it was just such a beautifully comfortable airplane got my 9g ticket <laughs> uh, so that was good but unfortunately i only ever did it once uh, as i said i flew in the harrier gr3 mm -hmm. noisy um a little bit uncomfortable very impressive takeoff, good acceleration. But the the really good thing was uh, I got this trip when I was in Dechi Mamanu, and we were doing the you know the edit, the uh, combat stuff, and they had some Harriers there, and I think it was a Kappa Frasca range they had there. They said anyone want to come and you know trip in a T two or T ten was it at the time? So I put my hand up. Yep, got it. And so we went and dropped some bombs, and he said, right, if you thought the acceleration was good, watch this. And he, he had his uh, other formation get ahead of him by a couple of miles. He accelerated, uh, and then he basically viffed it, you know, <laughs> yeah. broke. And that was like taking a, an arrestor gear. It really wow. was. You know, you were kissing the airspeed indicator on the, on the back panel. Very, very impressive. Um, they wouldn't use it in combat, I don't think. I've never seen a Harrier use viffing in combat. I've never heard of it. No, um, but people talk about it. Anyway, come back to the question. I, at the moment, right here, right now, before I get too old and can't get in an aeroplane, I really think I would like to go in an F-15 EX, the new one that's just Ooh. coming up. I love the F-15E. When, um, when they were talking about replacement for F-4s, and, and you, you know the stories, I'm sure, mm -hmm. they were looking at F-14, too expensive for the Phoenix missile, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they were thinking of F-15Es. I would love to have flown F-15Es. I might even have enjoyed, enjoyed the air-to-ground side. But I think that EX, to be honest, you know, with what does it can carry? 12, 12 odd air-to-air -air missiles plus that's what you need. Yeah, I think, it's, I, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of kit. And I'm so glad that they kept, you know, quote-unquote legacy plane going with you know new airframes i think it's absolutely absolutely wonderful well, it's a testament, decision. isn't it it's a mm -hmm. testament to the yep. design and it's you know it's got the new big um f35 screens yep. on the back we've been experimenting with that here with you know wide screens for hawks and things like that um a typhoon trip would be nice of course it would be uh, but i think if i as a backseater yeah f15 for me yeah okay very good uh right uh, what was it like being stationed in saudi arabia and did you enjoy your time there 
Uh, I went out there twice, actually. I went out when I was in the Air Force on secondment. I, when I was at RF Coningsby on the OCU as an instructor, um, we used to teach the, we used to have the, the Saudis who bought the Tornado F3. They used to do their conversion training at RAF Coningsby. So we, they had what they called a Saudi training flight. And I got invited to come and, and join them for a period, which I did. Uh, and then I went out to Saudi myself. I thought, well, I quite like these guys and everything like that. But I didn't go out on the, the F3. I went out on the, the jet stream, which doesn't sound very sexy at all, mm -hmm. you know, turboprop thing, but it had a tornado um, GR1 at the time cockpit in the back. Wow. And that's where the Wizzo did his training. And then you had another Wizzo up the front who was doing visual nav training. We did everything at 200 feet from takeoff. Cool. Everything. It wasn't particularly comfortable because it being a, a very low wing loader in the desert, you know, and you got the thermals and everything. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, it's, it was quite uncomfortable. But as a training machine, it was really good. And it also had a, an air defense, an ADV element to it as well. So we could do a bit of both. So that was my first time out in, in Saudi. Uh, and of course, you've got the tax-free wages and all yeah. of that kind of thing, which is sort of nice. Uh, and then the, the second time I went out was, I didn't expect to go out again, but um, just after I joined the company, having come back from Pilatus, uh, I had an opportunity to go out and, you know, introduce these, these new training aircraft to the RSAF. And one of them was the PC-21. And I obviously, I knew it very well and, and loved that airplane. I thought, yeah. I'll go out and do that. So I went out and did that for five years. Yeah. Okay, very good. Could we get a basic overview of the uh, weapon system officer's duties, um, if there is such a thing, uh, on either aircraft that you decide to talk about? Yeah, the the question says after taking off and, and getting, yeah, duties after taking off and getting near the mission zone or straight after the cold start. Well, actually, you know, your your duties really start before that, um, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but certainly on F, well, you would probably have seen F4s, um, but on F4s and F3s, whilst the pilot goes and signs for the aircraft and checks if there's any, you know, uh, mm -hmm. any bits that are US, but we can still go with, or, or what the state of the aircraft is, the wizard would normally go out, and in the F4, we used to jump in the front seat, set all the switches up, get power on it, you know, so we could start switching equipment yep. on in the back before the pilot came out. Uh, and for the F3, we did exactly the same thing. And, you know, we'd switch the uh, auxiliary power unit on so you'd hear something like an engine going because we had a twin IN in the in the F3 mm. and we needed to get that cranked up and going. So, you know, you'd go in and do all of that. Then you'd, you'd step in the back and all of the checks that you you did, apart from your very own in your very own cockpit, but all things like, um, you know, uh, pre-taxi, taxi takeoffs, pre pre-takeoff, after-takeoff checks, you know, recovery checks and everything, they were all uh, challenge and response. Roger. You know, so constantly you were, you know, you were acting as as a team. Uh, when we used to do simulators in uh, in both air, aircraft, you know, you have to go and do a simulator once a month or something like that to stay current on emergencies. We used to do reverse crew rides where the wizard would go and fly in the front and the pilot would fly in the back. And the reason for that was to to get an appreciation on you know on on what goes on in each cockpit. So when the pressure is on, like in an emergency, you know you you know from let's say if you're sat in the front seat as a wizard, if the guy in the back is going through the emergency checklist, you know faster than you can assimilate with what's going on in the aircraft while you're trying to handle it, then that's not a good thing. So it, it was 
a very it was good fun but it the it was primarily to for both of you to get a good idea of an appreciation of what goes on in in each cockpit so it was always a, a team effort because as i said before that airplane cannot be flown single seat or operated single seat yeah. you need to have both of you in there you know the training you did was the same you know uh, you had air combat phase training everything was the same you know if a pilot lost you know lost tally with a target in front of him but you had it you were expected to you know control the fight you were expected to look over your shoulder as well look at aircraft coming in look at aspect you know is it lead lag and if he didn't see it you would control the fight so you had to know all that information mm -hmm. you know shared between the two of you you had to be as good as each other in fact i, I saw one uh an f-14 rio the other day chasing f-16s doing exactly the same thing and i thought yeah that's that's exactly exactly what it's like yeah mm. so and with jtids coming in and have quick radios and all of that kind of thing in the f3 um yeah there was there was a lot to do and it, it started well before you got any aircraft and then debriefs as well you you know quite often if you were leading or being assessed uh, as a a, a wizzo as a four ship lead or something like that you'd be expected to brief it lead it debrief it yeah very good the next question is about dcs do you have an experience of dcs I do not. Um, I'm not flying as as much as I should do or would want to because I'm a bit busy at the moment. Sure. Um, but yes, I, I I bought A10 a long, long time ago. Um, but then I, uh, you know, when I went abroad and everything like that, I, I stopped flying with it. Um, but now I want to get back into it. And um, I don't know. Am I allowed to mention Howling Ravens that my son? Yeah, flies? absolutely. Is that, you're not going to yeah. shoot me. I will, there will be no shooting involved. I might go and shoot them in the sky, but I will not shoot. No, absolutely. Bring it on. Bring it on. Yeah. So awesome. uh, he, he's running Howling Ravens, and I've said to him that um, I'm going to get my acting gear, and, and if I can pass your uh, OCU and get accepted, I'll uh, I'll come in and do some flying. That would I, be I think awesome, yeah. Really, I think it's a brilliant piece of uh, software. Uh, I really do. Yeah. We, whistle, we love it also when, you know, ex uh, military pilots wizards whatever come and fly with us and bring their experience over to us we find it so fascinating and learn so much as well uh, oh yeah interesting uh, yeah i mean my my son and i'm sure it's the same for you know a lot a lot of you guys out there i've said to my to son matt um you know you probably know more about tactics and modern mission systems and avionics than i do now because he's you know he, he only flies the right uh, the, the viper and I've said to him, you know, I've no doubt that you could probably get in an aircraft, you know, start it up and go flying, you know, relatively safely. Mm -hmm. um, the operation is different. And, that, and there are, you know, when I watch all you guys out there, you know, it, it's brilliant what, what you're doing. There's some really, really, you know, talented people out there. And I think you would be able to go and fly the aircraft. And, and flying modern aircraft is not that difficult. It's the operation of them. And then it's, you know, don't underestimate the... The environment, you know, when you have to strap all your helmet on, your mask, it's sweaty. You've got your goon suit on, and you've got a cramped cockpit, and and all of that. That that all adds to sap a little bit of uh, of what goes on. But um, no, if if you know, if I'd have had this tool when I was younger, yeah, who knows? Mm -hmm. Okay. Really. On to tornadoes. What were your responsibilities as tornado instructor at Collinsby? And was the Tornado uh, an easy jet to master compared to others? Uh, tornado Instructor was, um, it was really primarily to get other Wizzos checked out, you know, teach them all of, that they needed to know 
on the F3 at Coningsby. But equally, um, as an experienced instructor in the back seat, you also had a responsibility to uh, teach the guy in the front stuff. Now, we wouldn't teach him how to fly the airplane. The first phase of his OCU would be with a pilot, you know, twin stick, and that's, that's the way they'd go. But once he'd learned to do that, and he can then fly with a, a WISO crew, and let's say you go off and do combat, for example, then, you know, with all due respect, he probably hasn't seen too much going on in combat in a, in a tornado. So you would start to take him through that and teach him the responsibility, you know, the crew resource management, help them out, all that kind of thing. So it's really just, um, it would be up to the WISO to take him through, you know, his tactics, learning of his tactics and everything like that. But anything to do with the manual handling of the aircraft and, you know, checking out instrument rides and everything like that was all done from the, the front seat side. Uh, is it an easy jet to master? Um, I, I didn't have any problem going from F4 to F3. I was truly, to be honest, I mean, they say your first squadron is your, you know, is your fondest squadron. And I loved 43 squadron and I loved the F4 and I loved doing QRA and everything like that. But I found it a very, I didn't like the cockpit. It's quite uncomfortable. It was noisy. Um, it was a bit, bit of an antique, although I didn't mm. feel that at the time, obviously. And I, I did nearly four years because uh, I, I had a problem when I, I played rugby and I was off for six months with a with a knee. So I, I did a little bit longer on the squadron, and uh, I could have gone on possibly. And and they talking about a qualified weapons instructor role, but I wanted to get off the the Phantom because I didn't want to get stuck on it. Because if you do something like a QI course, you have to amortise your course, which would have meant another tour. And the F two had just come in at the time, and the F three was tickling on the edges, and I wanted. I wanted to get onto tornadoes as much as I could. Um, I had a gap in between, which was instructing at, at Finningley, um, but I translated to it okay. Uh, some guys didn't. Some guys, you know, the, there was more to do in a tornado because you had more information coming at you. Like I said, you know, the radar, Fox Hunter radar and everything like that. Uh, we didn't have JTs when I first went through, but there was just a, you know, a lot more to, to do. Uh, and some guys, I presume, who were you know, maybe reached their capacity on the F4, uh, didn't quite crack it to the F3. It happened with a few of the pilots, but most of the pilots trans transformed, you know, relatively easy. Um, but in, in general, I think it was an easier jet overall because it was a much more pleasant working environment in the Tornado. Quite a big cockpit. Makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah, absolutely. The next question, we ask all 50 or so interviewees we've done, and the interesting thing is we've only got one of, sorry, we've only ever had two answers to this and let's see what happens with you but what was it what was the main reason that you joined the military or the, well, the air force i'm sure i'm sure i'm going to be as much of a cliche as, <laughs> as as anyone else you know when i was young well my father was in the air force he was an avionics engineer um to start with so i was around the air force and i was around airplanes and i just i just loved um dials knobs all that kind of technical stuff. I used to sit in bed pretending I was in an airline switching buttons on and things like that. And I just loved aircraft. Airfix model kits, radio control, all the usual stuff. So yeah. I wanted to No, it's all, yeah. always the same. Always the same. Always. With or without with or without a father or mother yep. in, in, yep. in the Air Force. It's, it's, I've never had a different answer yep. and I find that fascinating and interesting. Mm -hmm. um, what is the low level navigation instructor position? Okay, uh, when I was an instructor at Finningley, uh, we had a high level squadron so for those guys who went through the the basic common course at RF Finningley you could go two ways you could go the fast jet way 
or you could go the transport way. So those guys selected for transport would then fly in the 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 Domini, the HS125 Domini that had you know um, two seats down the down the back facing backwards, and they would do all of the uh, airways type, you know, all of the stuff that the transport stuff right. does. For those who were going fast jet for the the nav stroke wizos, they would go and do jet provost training on the jet provost squadron and go and do a lot of low level and, and introduction to air combat, you know, in a JP. Uh, and then they would come over to what we called Louts low level training squadron, which is where Simon and I were. And that was a an HS125 that had a, uh, a, a ra radar in it and it had a tactical air navigation system, TAMS, down the back. And everything was uh, basically done at low level. So you'd have the radar would be giving you what the what it's seeing on the ground so you get all the bright sparks in the low spark uh, areas and everything like that you'd have a route and you'd have you'd have um how can i describe it like a like a camera strip before it's been processed you know the negatives mm -hmm. of what the ground ahead should look like on the radar and you compared what you did see with what you should see and if they weren't the same you did something about it mm -hmm. and you had to do, we had to do you know time on targets uh, all of that kind of thing. It was a very, it was a very good system actually, and it was, uh, it was really quite hard work getting it all correct and that. Um, no inertial or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It was a question of programming it in and programming in uh, a decent wind, doing radar fixes. Now, that was all good stuff for the early models of Tornado, but nowadays with uh, all of the you know, the GPS, the INs with the flying from medium level with uh, GPS guided bombs and everything like that. I don't think, certainly on the tornado side, I don't think they do radar fixing at low level anymore. You know, they don't have to. Mm -hmm. The kit's just too accurate. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you did a radar fix, you're probably introducing more error. <laughs> That's in. funny, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, you know, but we come back to, well, what happens if that fails? But it would appear not to. So I don't think they do that that level of uh, or that kind, certainly not that kind of navigation anymore and fixing, but it was a really good introduction and basically put pressure on the, on the guys in the low level environment, um, you know, and then you decide on where they were gonna go from there. And you either sent to, in my time, you sent to Buccaneers or, or F4s. Yeah. Roger, I just had uh, my wife run upstairs to tell me that she'd just landed her first plane on DCS. So, <laughs> following in the footsteps, she's doing better than me. You've got your wife playing DCS. Yeah, yep, yep. It wasn't easy. There was some, uh, there was some resistance, shall we say? But we're, we're just about there now. Everything set up. We've got the joystick set up. We've got the, all the screen set up, and so, yeah. So one day we might have her in, in, uh, in you know, missions and stuff. But one thing at a time. Right, Nige. Now, where do we get to? Uh, right. So, okay. Next question, and we've already talked in quite a lot of detail about the cockpit of the yeah, RC-21, yeah. but is there any kind of, um, any overview, anything you want to add to that? I don't think so, actually. I think, uh, yeah, I think we spent a fair bit of time on the on the first one. Yeah, I mean, we had we had some good good discussions. It's a bit, you know, engineers and, and air crew, a bit like lions and hyenas, you know, mm. that, that constant. So you had the engineers saying, look, technically we can do this. You know, why don't you have all your screens blank, but don't display anything until you have a, do you have a problem and that and we said well yeah we know you could do that but for a training aircraft you know that wouldn't be the right thing to do we need them to you know they also need to be learning what the information means means and then the other thing is is if they go from an airplane that's as swept up as that as i said to a you know 
an older aeroplane, it's backwards training, and you don't really want to do that. Uh, and uh, I can't add any more to what I said, actually. Yeah. Roger. Next question. How do you tailor the current needs towards fast jet training programs? Is it more towards sensor fusion and integrated networks nowadays, or towards pilot skills and tactics? I think it's definitely the, the latter, yes. Uh, like I said, in, in, you know, in, in the old days, it was map and stopwatch. You know, that was that was a good way of putting pressure on people and, and trying to assess whether they've, uh, you know, what they've they've got, whether they've got the goods, that and hauling around, you know, a, a number two or a number three or a number four. You know, it saps a lot of uh, or can sap a, sap a lot of your brain power, you know, to haul a, a formation around. It always used to be fun going off on your own, just going out on the hunt and looking for for targets and having a. Uh, anything out there, but you wouldn't normally operate that way in a war scenario or anything like that. Um, so yeah, so we've now moved away from from that to mission training. And traditionally, tr training used to be, you know, if you're good, for example, if you're going to go from one aircraft to another, let's say you go from a, you know, a PC-21 to a Hawk, then you had to make sure that the, you know, the controls were similar. You know that the feel and, yeah. and the, the way switches worked and what they, what they did, so that you know you you had no negative training involved. But I, I think nowadays, you know, with with the young kids that are so used to things like DCS and mm -hmm. you know the cliche of the you know the iPad and the the PS5 and everything like that, um, we're now moving away from from that. It's the the important thing is you know do they know what they need to do in terms of the techniques? Yeah. The fact that you know if you give a kid a phone. And then take that phone away and give him a completely different make of phone. It'll probably take him ten seconds yeah. to sort it. Unbelievable, isn't it? It's not a problem. The controls might be in the wrong way. It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect their training at all. And that gives you a lot more flexibility now. Um, so to moving away to uh, mission systems with all of these, you know, different avionics with all of the the data that's coming in. The fact that it's on a different screen and, and it operates slightly different. They're going to get it, and they're going to get it very quickly. So things have moved. Aeroplanes are becoming a lot easier to fly. I've talked to, you know, some F-35 and, and Typhoon guys in the team as well. And the aeroplane itself is easy to fly. Like I said, you guys who are doing really good stuff could probably get in the jet and fly it pretty well. Yeah. It's the operation of it and making, you know, taking in all of this information, playing around with it and making a decision. Mm -hmm. And a decision is better than, you know, an 80% decision is better than no decision at all and and that's where the uh the training is tending towards now is uh, your ability to handle lots and lots of data because you don't have to worry about the airplane so much more mm. now they still do you know when you still go through training you, you still do the you know you've got to learn your straight and level and and how to throw it around a, a loop and things like that because that that's good it teaches you to you know to play with the airplane get confidence in it etc etc but it's really all about systems these days yeah okay are the modern jets entering the service now changing the way of the air forces around the world how they operate and how big is the leap forward uh yeah i think that's a it's a really good question and i the, the problem is is that you know a modern jet you know if someone says yes we're going to make a new jet i mean you may not see that for another 12 to 15 years uh, you know, so something has got to be done about that, and I think there's a question about Tempest later on, and we could we could come back to 
do that. Um, but I think the you know drone technology, loyal wingman, and AI, I think is is one that's going to be changing things quite quite rapidly. I, I really do. Um, I think the age of, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit forward up here. A lot of people might disagree with me. But in let's say in 20 years' time, 25 years' time, someone talking about a new frontline fighter, will it be manned? I'm going to say I don't see any reason why it should be, mm-hmm. to be honest, because the pace of particularly AI is is really just accelerating like like crazy. And, that, and designing an aeroplane for combat, you know, one-on-one combat, whilst it's fantastic fun doing it, does it have any real place these days? I don't think so. Um, if you can design an airplane that just happens to have a good, you know, dogfighting capability, good. But I wouldn't compromise the design in other areas to achieve that personally, because mm-hmm. uh, I think it's all going to be about, you know, carrying drones around with you and um, just get that, get those missiles on and get them off. And do you need a, you know, do you need a, a pilot to do that? At the moment, yes. Future, I don't think so. So mm-hmm. things are changing. It's just that. It takes a long time to make a change to an aircraft. And then you get things like the F-15. You know, 50 <laughs> Back to <years>. basics. <laughs> yeah, 50 years, and they're mm-hmm. just about to produce a new mm-hmm. version. And, you know, old guy like me is going, do you know what? I'd like to go and fly that. And a lot of the younger guys would go, mm-hmm. I'd like to go and fly mm-hmm. that too. You know, so there we are. There we are. Excellent. Uh, I mean, leads us beautifully into the next one. Is the man behind the stick of a UAV like... A Reaper drone? Are they a pilot, or are they a WSO? Are they an overpaid gamer? Are they an Air Force member? And what position is he or she sitting on? Uh, it sounds like you could insult several different people in yes, you uh, can. in that in that question. Um, I remember when I went to a conference in the states around about 2011, and I was listening to a a presentation. It was about drones. It was an F six F sixteen pilot stood up. And said the only person who can be a reaper pilot is a fast jet pilot he said they're the only people who are qualified to do that and and i and i didn't agree with that back then and and i don't think that's the case now um i don't know whether it was a you know a bit of well we're the only guys you know we we drop bombs so therefore don't step into our territory or something like that mm-hmm. it felt a little bit like that um but the way that they're operated I don't think you need to have a, you know, a fast jet pilot to do that. But I do think in many areas you do need to have someone who does understand flying to a certain extent. Yeah. And that, you know, so that may only be 30 hours in a Cessna or something like that. But at least they would understand some of the basics to identify something is is going wrong. I, I certainly don't think they're overpaid gamers. You know, they've got a definite job to do. There's no doubt about it. Um, and when you strap weapons, serious yeah. weapons on, on a platform, you've got a serious job, you know, and it needs serious people to, to fly it. I, I think the more important person is probably the, um, you know, the guy sitting next to them with all yeah. of the systems in there and the guy who sits behind them. Calling the shot. Takes command and is running the show. Mm. That, that's the important thing about it. I mean, I, I did UAV. I worked on the Herty project mm-hmm. um, back, back in about 2010, you know, the BA system. Basically, a, a big motor glider that had some UAV stuff on it, and I was down in Australia for a, for a few months, and we were we were testing that out. Now, in terms of did you need a pilot, we we could control it, but that was a last resort. Everything was done automatically using a form of 
AI. So you cranked up the engine, it taxied out. Um, we'd, we'd been out and we'd, you know, surveyed all of the taxi route it would take, surveyed to high accuracy, the, the runway, the position, the center line and everything like that. So you could give it a flight plan and it would taxi out itself, uh, get onto the runway, obviously take off, go fly, come around, land again. And we had one instance where there was a hell of a crosswind going and it would have been very, very difficult, I think, for mm -hmm. a human pilot to, you know, to have flown this thing with a big wing and everything like that with a massive crosswind. And this this thing automatically did it, and it didn't deviate by more than about three feet off the center line. Mm. It it was very very impressive. Um, however, it wasn't a Reaper, and it was designed to do a slightly separate job. But what it did is it showed, I think, the capability that is in there. But um, you can either make a decision and go, there is no way of flying this airplane, so there is you don't actually have a pilot involved, or if there is a way of flying this airplane in a you know a standby mode or something and flying it traditionally then I think you, you need to have someone who's had some experience. But does it have to be a you know a $70,000 a year F-16 guy? I don't think so. Well, that's a really interesting point. Um, uh, but the main thing I picked up from there is that, for instance, if you are on a bombing mission over Afghanistan, yeah. in a, you know, a, a legacy plane, an F-16, whatever, uh, or, or a stealth plane with a man in the cockpit, uh, he has his briefing at the beginning, but the decisions are essentially his. Should I take the shot? Should I not take the shot? It depends on what he sees on his teapod and whatnot. One thing that you've said that I haven't thought about before is if, we, if let's say it's a Reaper drone, you've got a young guy, relatively young guy, uh, and relatively maybe inexperienced compared to the legacy aircraft pilot actually pushing the buttons, but what he has is a CO standing behind him, kind of making the decisions. I yes. never really thought about that, right? So, you, so you, in some ways, you don't need that fast jet pilot, like you said, who has all the experience and the ability to make really big decisions. When you you can have the CO behind, who can monitor a whole bank of uh, uh, reapers. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, rules of engagement, even when you're flying, ca can be quite difficult sometimes. You know. If they're not set out properly and followed properly, it, you know, it can be sometimes difficult to get permission to drop something. Um, but as you say, quite rightly, normally you go up with a brief, you know what the ROE are um, and you you do it. So the problem's not there. And I sort of come back to the right at the start where I, I'd heard that in the past that, you know, the Gripen might be going for a, a two seat aircraft, but with a command in the back, you know, and that, that kind of brings you back to this same same kind of scenario. Yep. Yeah. Would that be only one in every ten Grippens has a commander, or oh. that's how I see it? Or have I, have I got that uh, wrong? It could be. Uh, I, I guess it depends on you know on on what the level of of um, integration is. Mm. You know how powerful mm. is your your JTIDs, You know, or or your your mids or your data link. How much information can he control? Mm. Has mm. has he got you know Grippens, and has he got you know half a dozen drones on his wing as well? And uh, if people are thinking that seems weird and backwards, it makes perfect sense to me to have your commander upstairs because when you're in the cockpit, you see so much more that you can't abase. You see the weather, you can see, you know, you can get almost that kind of sixth sense that you simply can't get down on the ground. That's right. And if you've got a fast, you know, fast changing um, mm. workplace going on in a small part of, you know, a bigger picture or something like that, it, it might be an advantage to, um, you know, to take your commander in. In the air, uh, I don't think anything's going to come off it, but I do remember them uh, uh, looking at that that mm. kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. 
Right, uh, what is your position at BAE Systems? We've had uh, two of your colleagues on, actually, before. Um, at the moment, and do you enjoy your time there? Uh, I'm an aircrew training manager uh, responsible for many areas of sort of current and legacy training. We're a little bit, a group of us, excuse me, we're a little bit like what we call a shared service. So if someone has any questions about flying training or anything to do with that, you know, okay, let's tap into the aircrew training team and they can give us some answers. If we're, you know, if there's a new bid coming up to sell some, you know, training aircraft somewhere, then uh, they would come to us to, you know, to put the aircrew training side into it. So, you know, we might look at training needs analysis, look at what the customer's got, where does he want to go? So this is what you need to do. We might produce syllabi, we might produce courseware, all of that kind of thing. Um, that's the sort of day-to-day-ish type stuff. Uh, things I'm getting involved in uh, is the use of VR and AR in flying training. Mm-hmm. You know, big sims with big domes and lots of expensive projectors are inherently expensive yep. and they're not very transportable. Um, I, I think we're getting close enough now in, in VR. And you guys have seen that as well. With, and I've seen it. Playing DCS with a mm-hmm. with a VR helmet on is you know is pretty good. It's got some disadvantages at the moment, but I think given time they're going to be uh, sorted out. Uh, but that is the way forward, and we're already starting to you know put in place training systems that will be based on on VR. Yes. Okay. The next one's a big one. <clears throat> so strap yourself in. We are all excited about the Tempest project. So the kind of you know the next. Uh, British yeah. thing, um, but uh, isn't it isn't it a bit too ambitious to say that a demonstrator will be produced and will fly in the next five to six years, where a massive war-ready machine like the US pours trillions into uh, trillions of dollars into an F thirty-five project, and it takes decades to get into service and in production with massive setbacks and delays. Is it a bit optimistic for such a smaller economy to achieve the same goal for a fraction of the time and money? Yes, is the is my uh, abrupt answer to that one. Uh, it depends what you mean by demonstrator. You know what state that demonstrator would be in. You could have something flying in five to six six years, but is it going to demonstrate the total capability or just a part of it? You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I'm not directly involved in the Tempest. I've been indirectly involved, um, and if, even if I were directly, obviously I couldn't say mm-hmm. say too much. Um, we've spoken about the fact that it takes a long time to you know to design a new aircraft and get it into front line and that has you know that's got to stop there's no doubt about it and i think part of the tempest project uh, and this is common knowledge which is obviously why i'm saying it uh, is they are looking at new manufacturing and design techniques where they'd be able to cut that amount of time down okay and you cut time therefore you you cut costs um i don't think uh, the uk will go this alone uh, they're not going it alone at the moment they've got other partners in there and um i've no reason to think that we could go it alone you know these these things are not cheap but what they've got to do is they've got to look at the areas of it that are expensive and you know effectively make them cheaper uh that's difficult there's no no doubt about it you know excuse me stealth is one of them should does it automatically have to be stealthy there's there's something for a debate how long does stealth last for how long does the advantage last for uh could it be unmanned or not um will it utilize you know the loyal wingman type thing will it be a, a center thing for that 
Will it be flown by a pilot and or, you know, like a commander? So you've got AI in, involved. And I, I have seen, you know, some of the AI that's going on there. And again, this you, you can go online and, and see this. Uh, I've been lucky enough to check out the Striker 2 helmet with all of the, you know, the VR cockpit in there. But, you know, there's, there's no cockpit in front of you physically. It's, it's just basically a piece of wood there. You strap the helmet on and it gives you all the, the information you've got. Now, if you look to, you know, a, a PlayStation or something like that, um, it wouldn't be too far from from what you're seeing in the striker helmet. That's mm. for sure. That is a leap change in in um, you know what what we currently have for traditional aircraft. But it's it's very clever in the way that they are, are manipulating that information. And of course, the the level of secure information that you can get now flying around between platforms up there. You know, you just have to turn your head and you see a synthetic aircraft or a target out there, and it gives you a readback on. All manner of statistics on that aircraft is brilliant. But one of the, the, the things that I really liked, um, and some of you may already have um, had this in, in gaming software, is the fact that it has 3D sound is what they're looking at too. Mm. You know, so you get a placement in your head of where, where your wingman is. So if you call you know three position, all he has to do is go position, for example. Say any word he likes, and it comes in your rear right. So you know where he is. You don't have to look. You don't have to work out from what he's saying where he is and things like that. And that is uh, that was really good. I must admit, for me personally, I really felt that that was uh, good. Uh, if you're taking, as I say, it takes a lot of brain power to take a formation around with you and everything right. like that, and and, yeah. and being able to in your head know instantly where they are just from you know one word or something. That's uh, interesting, that's isn't it? Because so they're really using cool. one of, one of your other senses that you would actually use if you were. A caveman running around with four people you wouldn't look at them necessarily you'd listen to them wouldn't you so it makes yeah. perfect sense yeah so they you know they're looking at many directions in there you know they're looking at uh, all of the eye tracking you know where do you look at in a cockpit we're doing a lot of studies on that where you know where are the stress points and when you're stressed you don't perform as well as you should so are you being stressed out in one particular area can you read that display properly if you can't we'll find out you know so it could be that your stress is not because you can't do it. Your stress is because you're looking at an instrument that doesn't give you the information well enough. It doesn't give it quickly enough or, you you know, whatever. So very a, a lot of really interesting things going on in real time at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Right. OK, very good. Uh, right. That was that. Uh, I forgot where we got to. OK, um, if you work well, so we're kind of back to the, the old school Pilot yeah. and, and WSO, I know we're bouncing about a bit, but yeah. That's okay. uh, if you work well with a certain pilot as a team, are you allowed to fly together all the time for, for, for that pairing? Um, uh, or pilot and or are you paired together prior to a flight? Uh, if normally on a on a squadron, um, you know, depending on your experience, you you quite often flew with different pilots. You you as an experienced pilot might fly with a young, younger, inexperienced WISO bring him you know to help him along bring him up to to speed and and vice versa but if we're ever on exercises you know and practicing war or god forbid going to war you were normally teamed up with somebody so you knew who your pilot was but on day-to-day -day flying you might you know you might train with other front and back seaters for the reasons i said but um you would normally be crewed with a pilot so if we went to red flag or maple flag or any of the exercises you'd normally fly with the same pilot all the time 
and that's okay so you get your crew cooperation you get a slick piece of action going on between the two of you uh and and you know more often than not it really really did work very well yeah very well Roger, I mean, it all sounds perfectly logical to be honest exactly the kind yeah. of thing you would do so no surprises Absolutely. there yeah. Okay, um, I assume this is aimed at you as a WSO. Which of the jets you have flown was giving you the best SA capabilities and was the best one for doing your job as a WSO? Uh, well, I think you can probably guess what my answer mm. is. It, it's the F3 mm -hmm. Tornado. Yeah, as I said, I I wanted to move off of the F4 for a number of reasons, but if we put all of those, you know, oh, it was a bit uncomfortable, and, you know, in, in the gun pack, and it was a constant 4G, and you had your head down in the radar, and it was uncomfortable, and that, but um, if you talk about operationally, then the F3 was, to me, was streaks ahead of the F4. Yeah. No yeah. doubt about it. The radar was much better, as I've said, you know, without repeating myself, all the amount of information that was given to you, the fact that we could, even with two TV tabs up in front of our eyes, we could see left and right, we could all, you know, we could, it wasn't a bubble canopy, but we could see a lot more, you know, out the sides and behind us. And, and when they put the grab rails in the, the back seat with the, the chaff and flare buttons on them, mm. that was great. In you know, in, in combat, you could hold on to them and you could really give yourself another 20 degrees of neck twist and things like that. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it was a much better aircraft. It, the cliche, of course, is everyone said it before. It wasn't a dogfighter. And we would never pretend it would, you know, would be a dogfighter. We'd go and dogfight with it, you know, for fun and for, you know, becoming confident in what the aircraft could do and, and fighting it to its limits. But if you if you came across an F-16, you know, you would be looking for how can I get out of this? Yeah. You'd, you'd either shoot him in the face if you could or you'd flash past and, you know, live to fight, come back another day. Um, but if you got into a turning fight with him, then, you know, hey, you're going to get greased. There's, there's no two ways about it. The only thing we did say sometimes, if you got very slow with an F-16, uh, maybe you got into uh, uh, a slow speed scissors or something like that with the wings forward in the in the tornado and the uh, tailerons as well, we could actually go quite slow. Mm -hmm. And I and you'd get to the area where the F-16 started to be a little bit uncomfortable. But that wasn't so you could beat it. That was so that you could look, you know, when you crossed for... A way out. Yeah, burners in, plug the wings back, and then just get out of dodge and do what the tornado did, which was to go fast, particularly at low level. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So it's got to be the for me. It's got to be the uh, the F three of the two two main operational jets I flew. Yeah. Very good. The next question. I assume he's talking about the T two, but is the Hawk going to be replaced by another advanced trainer that gives more and better capabilities towards training new pilots in the future? Uh, I think the answer to that is is no. Um, from my position, uh, and I do a lot of things with the Hawk, uh, I don't think the company is going to be looking at a new Hawk trainer. Uh, you've got the new T7, Red Hawk, you know, that's just coming um, out of the States. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be, I'm sure that's going to be selling like, uh, excuse me, like hotcakes. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm not a businessman, but... I think that would be a hard nut to crack to bring out a new jet trainer that would go up against the uh, the new American trainer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't see a compelling business reason to take that on, to be honest. Roger, yeah, makes sense. Okay. Uh, ha -ha. What are your memories about the F4 Phantom and did you enjoy your time serving on this monster? Uh, I certainly did, yeah, as I said. 
you know, I had a, a thoroughly great time on my first my first tour on 43 Squadron, um, flying flying that jet as a as a youngster. We got up to uh, you know a lot of good things. We did you know QRA. We, um, we did exercises. We went to Gibraltar. We flew against you know all manner of aircraft. It was fun. There's no doubt about it. Um, and at the time, you know, it was a serious all rounder. It it could do its business. Um, but I preferred the F3, and my favourite tour was when I was XO on on Five Squadron. But you can't ignore the F4. I think um, Dave Gledhill said it. You know, whatever you think about the uh, the F4 or whatever, you can't ignore it. And there, I've, I've got colleagues of mine who you know who are working with us who've flown Tornado and everything like that. And some of them have said, "Yeah, I wouldn't have minded to go in an F4. You know, it looks just such a beast." Mm-hmm. And it, and it was, you know, it was it was a carrier borne aircraft and. Yeah, it could take a lot of punishment, as I've, I've hinted. Yep, and it Supersonic, one on one. Yep, had a big career. Uh, so did his, did his time, did well. Okay, how do you train or teach new WSOs to interact with a pilot as a successful team? That's just training, to be honest, yeah, pure and simple. As I said, you know, you've you've got a platform that demands uh, a pilot and a wizard, and it can only be operated that way. Uh, so you bring the two together. Hopefully, they've had a similar kind of background and experience in flying hours. Remember, I was talking to you about mm-hmm. you know early days. The Wizos never used to do yeah. fast jet training, so they were at a disadvantage in terms of experience when when they got together with the pilots at an OCU, and then we changed that. Uh, and then it's 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 just purely down to training. You know, that that's all it is. Sometimes you would come up against you know for pilots who've flown always flown a single seat and you know the transition to flying with a back seat it can take a uh, a little getting used to some will say they didn't like to do it but most of the guys i know who have flown both would say if i had to go to war um when the pressure's on yeah the advantage of you know flying in a two-seat aircraft they would prefer that but i do get the you know i get the single seat mentality you know you're at the uh, pinnacle you're doing everything yourself and you take a lot of pride in in doing it and you know accomplishment i i get that i really do but it's all about teamwork it's all about uh, crew resource management is what we call it yeah my job now i'm not sure if this next one is really up your street but I'll, I'll ask it anyway is the training pattern and design a bit more different for pilots selected to be operating the new f-35s on the queen elizabeth class carriers than those selected to operate off land air force bases i i wrote down that i don't think i can <laughs> I thought that, yeah. Question, but I, I think from an operations point of view, there is a difference between conventional airfield ops and naval carrier ops. But that that's the same for, you know, any aircraft that flies off carriers. You know, they have certain design points and, and training bespoke to carrier ops as opposed to, you know, take off and landing at a conventional airfield. Um, no, I, I can't. I don't have enough information on that to really answer that question to do it justice yeah that's fine uh, this next one let's see if we can get to the bottom of this what are the important points when a new training methods are developed or old ones changed where you start from and do you need to gather lots of info and statistics of what would work first uh yeah there's two ways of looking at this there's a simple change so for example let's say you're going to have a new uh a new radio in your in your aircraft um if it fits in the same slot 
and it looks the same and operates the same. It's just that it's say, for example, got a thousand million channels instead of three, mm -hmm. then the training wouldn't change. It would be form, fit and function. You wouldn't do a, a training needs analysis. You wouldn't change the syllabus. Away you go. You just replace one with the other. Uh, if you bring a new weapon on board, completely new, okay, uh, then what you do is you do a training gap analysis. You look at what they currently train, okay, and you, you look at the weapon and, and go, is there a gap between what they know to what they need to know? And if the answer is yes, then you have to fill that gap and you design the training to fill that gap. So if you take someone, if you are um, going to sell someone a completely new aircraft like we, we are to some of our customers, a new, totally new training system, um, and they've never had these aircraft before, so they're going from an old analog aircraft like a Chicano or a PC-9 you know, to a PC-21 and a, uh, a Hawk T-2, then you would have to design everything right from the word go. Every training, every piece of training that you need to do in that aircraft has to be written down and then you develop a syllabus from it and then you develop the courseware from that syllabus and i can it never used to be that way um in in my old days you know if you were wanted to uh, right guys we're gonna have a new syllabus yeah you get together in a in the crew room or in an office have a cup of coffee and then that afternoon you'd knock out a new syllabus and that was the way you went and it was implemented from monday but these these days, you know, there's there's a lot more going on, and there's um, you've got to have an audit trail in case something does go wrong. And I'll give you a good example. Um, when I was in Saudi Arabia the last time, we did lose one of the aircraft out there, basically stalled around finals and ploughed in, and unfortunately killed killed mm -hmm. the crew. Um, so they they do their board of inquiry, and I knew what was going to happen. And about six months later, the the boss walked into my office and said training knowledge right the board of inquiry is looking at did he have adequate training because the the inference was there might have been a mistake made mm -hmm. if he's not been trained for it then something has gone wrong and you need to change your training but because we've got this audit trail through you know the training needs analysis that can be hundreds of pages long and we've got the syllabus i was able to identify precisely where the training ob objectives were for stalling where in the syllabus he should have learnt it, where did he learn it, and it was signed off during his conversion, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And once you fill all those boxes in, et cetera, and you know, you've got ticks in the boxes, then the answer was, okay, thank you very much, and the board of inquiry can go away. But if we found out that either we hadn't given him stall training on that particular regime, or um, it was incorrect, then you can make make the changes. It's a little bit more difficult when you've done a syllabus on the back of a fact packet, if you see what I mean. Yep. You've probably got a good idea, but you can't audit it in, in that respect. And, you know, with courts and lawyer, you know, all, all that kind of yep. thing, you have to be very careful. And to be honest, although it's a pain doing training needs analysis, it's like working with, you know, a big spreadsheet. It takes hours and hours to do it. But once you've done it, it makes your life easier, but you have to do it. Roger, that makes perfect yeah. sense. And it's, you know, it's the, it's the way the rest of the world of work as well nowadays so it's, you know. all the militaries yeah they've all gone that way mm -hmm. yeah it's do rigueur yeah mm -hmm. okay uh this one we've breezed over but can a rear seater become a front seater can a front seater become a rear seater uh yes yes in, indeed um i know many uh, of my wizzo colleagues say many uh half a dozen of them uh who have gone from being a wizzo to a pilot yeah, and vice versa. Now, when I, uh, you know, I, I fessed up front that I'd gone through pilot training, got to my 
my final handling test and I didn't get any further than that, but it was, you know, it was nearly there. Um, but a friend of mine, when we started that course, he was, he was suspended from flying after about uh, 20 odd hours. Hmm. Okay, and he was sent to, uh, and was going to go and do navigator training. And, and we carried on training. However, you know, a few months later, he was given a chance to go back to pilot training. Um, we were at Linton. He went to a different, uh, he went to Church Fenton, was given another sort of 10 or 15 hours to uh, get back into the, the swing of it. And he ended up flying Buccaneers <laughs> and Tornado. So, you know, he obviously had it, but he didn't have it quite at that time and had to reprove himself. And so you get people who bloom late or, you know, who are great up front and then tail off. Uh, so you you do get pilots and you do get pilots who who cross over, but um, that's voluntarily that's that's not that often. But you do get a lot of whizzers, and and you know if you're a whizzer on a on a squadron, you've got a lot of experience, and that um, you know it's it's not a great leap to jump in the front seat and and do the training that way. You know you've got a lot of give the system, and you've got a lot of knowledge in there to help you along the way. Some some whizzers or navs never wanted to be in the front seat. Um, others did. A lot of whizzos wanted to be in the front seat, didn't make it, but they flew very successfully from the back. Um, one of the exact, you, you wonder, well, why is a whizzo flying? Well, actually, we, we used to do a lot of flying from the rear seat. And when we were at, when I was first at Coningsby, we had two air combat domes for the, the F3. And we used to start, do go in and do our training there, and we'd go in with the pilots and we'd watch they, what they were doing. Uh, and some of the pilots started getting a little bit um, ill, you know, disorientation after they came out of the the domes and you know doing combat training everything mm. is you know moving all over the place it's not as if you're just doing low level so the rules stated right if as a pilot you go into the dome you cannot go flying for six or seven hours so none of the pilots went in the domes but as a wizzo you could go in the dome mm -hmm. and then go flying because you weren't in control of the the real aircraft mm -hmm. so we used to go into the air combat dome all the time and a lot of the guys got very very good at doing combat and that translated into the air you know if you flew with a pilot uh, mate of yours who knew that you you like to fly from the 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 back seat um then they were very good you know they gave you they gave you time yes and in fact when i was on the saudi training flight uh with the saudis we always flew twin stick because the saudis were never used to bad and poor weather and we'd had instances where you know, things have got awry. So the rules were, we'll pick a whizzo who, who can fly. And in fact, they gave us a mini conversion. So if our, our Saudi pilot in the front, you know, got us into a bit of a pickle or something like that, whether or whatever, for whatever reason, then we could take control and deal with it. And that was great fun. Mm -hmm. You know, I was one of those guys. Uh, I love to fly from the back. And fortunately, the guys in the front, you know, were really cognizant of that. And they gave you opportunity, every opportunity to do it. And then some guys obviously got very good at it and then gone, okay, can I do the transition across? And uh, they made it. Interesting. Okay, very yeah. good. Uh, next question, can DCS be used as a tool to attract a new generation of pilots and Air Force crews towards a military career? So we're not talking about training, any kind of official training, but can it, that initial interest that got you interested when you were a kid, I think we're that's kind of what we're looking at. Oh, I've... I mean, I think the answer is definitely yes, it's, it's happening. Yeah, I mean, I, I started off with um, Microsoft Flight Simulator. Mm -hmm. uh, and then and when Falcon came, came through, I started playing on Falcon. Um, my son 
Matt used to hang around in, you know, behind me like a ghost watching what I was <laughs> doing. Um, you know, move over, Dad. I want to have a go. And so he got in into it, into it as well. You know, if, if I'd have had, as I said, if I'd have had this level of capability, you know, when when I was younger on a squadron, and I I fundamentally believe that we would have, you know, we'd have been even better trained. And I know talking with Simon. Simon Pearson, that um, you know, the, this is already happening, and the military. I think yeah, the military are absolutely. already catching onto this, you know, with their own training in their own time. And to me, it's a no-brainer. You know, it's I hate playing um, arcade. If I, I don't play arcade sims, I don't play arcade flying sims or anything like that. I hate them because the you know the flight model's not right. You mm -hmm. accelerate from naught to a thousand kilometers an hour in two seconds, mm -hmm. and all of that. It's it's good fun. But possibly, um, but as a simulator, that you know, to actually learn something, no. And I think DCS is you can you can take it as seriously as you like. You know, you can step to the aircraft, do everything in accordance with real life, or you can you know become good at little bits of it and have a, a, a lot of good fun mm. along the way. So I think it's got a great a great great future. Can't wait for Typhoon to come out. I know everyone's going. Let's get an F four or you know an mm. F three. It, it it's going to be good. Um, it's it's a really really good professional piece of software. Yeah, no I've been speaking to lots of people about it. Obviously, the biggest kind of use for it, from what the various people I've spoken to about it in in a professional setting, is that the your 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 four man kind of squad members yes. can can go and link up like we do, and what yep. they can really work on that's a bit, you know, it's too expensive to work on in four actual Eurofighters is their working togetherness, uh, sorry, team play, you know, that that's the kind of thing I'm getting at, of being able to work together in various situations where that's obviously extremely difficult to do live, and it's almost free to do in DCS. Oh, uh, yeah, as, as I said to you, you know, one, one of the... Um you know, one of the more difficult things to do well is to carry a formation around with you yeah. as a leader. You know, it, it, it can it can make or break people. There's there's no doubt about it in the early days. And and that certainly with, you know, something connecting up, that is something that, that you guys can, can get used to very, very early on. No doubt about it. You know, weapons, you know, if you've got a two hundred mile weapon, where do you where do you learn to shoot that thing? <laughs> sure, yeah. In in the UK. You know, you've got to go to Flag or Maple Flag or Australia or somewhere like that, or you you go into DCS and you invent the airspace. The techniques are the same. It doesn't matter where you are. It's the techniques that you're mm -hmm. you're training and learning, and you mm -hmm. just apply them to wherever you are in the world. And that and that's the beauty of a, a simulator. Uh, yeah, it's good and it's good fun too, isn't it? Yeah, it's great uh, absolutely. To yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are there are hundreds hundreds of games, hundred game sims, whatever you call them out there. Uh, but the good thing about this one is it's so incredibly difficult. You you have to spend. Well, I've spent five years, you know, learning it, <laughs> and I'm still yeah. only halfway through. You know, and and because I, I my and people like you and you know other people have a certain type of brain that that need the reward from having worked very hard at something, whereas maybe working not very hard at something like a modern just game doesn't give you much reward um but we get vast reward from putting vast amounts of effort into our into our games yeah, that we do. yeah. And, and i i think i've said to my to my son matt as well i, I think another big element of it and, and i get it and i'm you know and, and i'm with it is is a lot of uh, the guys and girls out there flying the dcs no doubt would say you know i want to see if i could do what they do for real yep 
I want the satisfaction of, you know, sitting to myself and saying, hey, man, if I got the opportunity to do that, I reckon I could do that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I understand that completely. Uh, I, I really do. Um, I want to get myself emerged in it, um, but I don't, at the moment, I just don't have the time, you know, to sit down, as you said, you know, to, to become a, an expert on Viper. It would take you months. And if, like you, Cap, you want to be an expert on all the aeroplanes, um, good luck with that. Yeah, it never happens. <laughs> never happens. You know, there's never <laughs> enough time no. uh, to do that. But one, one day I'm going to pick a module, and I don't know what it's going to be yet. I'm going to pick a module, and that's going to be my plane, and I'm going to strap that on, and I'm going to join the guys mm-hmm. and, and have some fun. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Now, the next question we've already covered in the, you know, Navigator, Wizzo, Dying Breed, and we've talked about why they're a dying breed, obviously, replaced by automation. Anything you want to add to that? Um, anything I want to add to that? Uh, I'm not sure actually that is, there is anything I, I can add to it. Uh, I think part of the answer is the automation. Yes. Um, but is, is part of it just the cost of a two seat mm-hmm. aircraft? Mm-hmm. If you see what I mean, the subtle mm-hmm. difference between the two and the first person to go will not be the pilot. Um, I think it's just the, it's technology. Moving on, as I said, the next thing will be one day, it will be pilotless aircraft. And when we don't need to do close in combat and all of that kind of thing, you know, and we've got a very sophisticated AI and that's happening. Um, the next thing will be no pilots or at least pilot monitoring on the ground. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Any swings flashing around. So I think the era of the, uh, the WISO uh, post F-15 probably and, and tornado in Saudi Arabia is, is coming to an end. Yeah. Roger. Okay, which brings us on to our last one. This one's kind of funny, but also has a serious aspect to it. What if the rear seater and the front seater are in disagreement in some in something critical in the middle of a mission? Who takes over and who follows whose decisions? Um, at the end of the day, in terms of the um, the hierarchy and the way that the the air force or a military works is. The pilot is normally the captain of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so I would probably say if he wants to overrule or has a disagreement and says I think this is better and it doesn't work out, then the onus would be on him to explain it. For example, um, but I'm trying. I'm I'm trying to think of. I mean, you you can sit in an aircraft and you can discuss things about what might be the best way to do it. But I'm, I'm trying to think of examples where where people argued or anything like that. I think the only, the closest thing I can come to that, and it's probably weren't expecting it, is if um, a backseater and a front seater disagree about the safety and the way the aircraft's been flown. Mm-hmm. I do know that some, some WISOs have um, refused to fly with some people because they think they're, you know, they're not professional enough and they're dangerous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, the thing about, I think about, you know, military training is that it's really very, very good training. You know, you don't get to be a a pilot and you don't get to be a fighter pilot because you're an idiot. You know, they're all, they're all compared to the norm, they're all very good mm-hmm. guys and girls. You know, they're extremely good at what they do. They're very talented. It's a bit like um, Formula One racing drivers. Sure. You, get, you get some who are at the back of the grid all the time but if you were to drive with him, you'd probably go, this guy's a driving god. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. You know, so it's the little bits that make the difference. Uh, so I think people are, it's not that they're unprofessional. I think it's 
it's one of those things about maybe you know overconfidence and things like that um i'm trying hard cap to think of you know examples where i've known people to actually roger i mean really disagree and and i can't to be honest because your training and your tactics and everything like that yeah things do change sometimes but um what you normally do is have a discussion and you just come to an agreement and uh check it out life goes on if it works great if it doesn't work let's explain why it didn't work in the debrief and yeah you, you know debriefs can be quite hairy sometimes and they can get a bit but at the end of the day you go to bar go to the bar you have a beer and you go what did we learn from that we learned this fantastic let's not do it again then let's right, do something yeah. else yeah i'm yeah. i'm i'm always in the background thinking whenever anyone's answering one of these questions oh how does that apply to me in my kind of simulator and, and that's one thing that doesn't really apply yes we do have disagreements and stuff and because we're not professionally trained we do have disagreements and arguments but not about the same things that you guys like safety we would never have a disagreement about safety because for obvious reasons we're in a game slash sim doesn't matter if we hit a tree it's a bit annoying maybe yes that so yeah. so whenever it comes to safety talking to you guys the professionals that have done it that's the one major thing that doesn't you know whether it's you know, if you're going to practice your acm and you have to practice separations you know we would never think no one's ever thought about doing that in dcs having to yeah. separate in case you hit each other you want to hit each other it's fun so that's the <laughs> one it's the one thing that doesn't come across when yes. uh, obviously with with the layman but uh, everything else is pretty good right no, that we've got to the end there. That was a biggie and a really goodie as well. There was so much stuff. Um, hey, uh, I enjoyed we... it. I enjoyed it. I hope others enjoyed it as well. Um, but yes, it was good fun. Very good questions too. Very good questions. No, they are very good. Um, what I would say is, um, uh, obviously, you've got to, you're going to go on and crack on with your very busy career. If things ever do slack and wind down a bit and you want to come and, and uh, into DCS like you say uh, you'd like to do then by all means hit us up then and because uh, we always love guests flying with us uh, it, doesn't, oh, you bet. It, it doesn't always work out well you end up having shooting your friend down by accident but it's it's more about the experience talking to them and you know the interaction um, you'll be Absolutely more, right. more than welcome um, I'm going to be on it. I am, I promise. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful. Right, well, I've just taken three hours of your life, so I'm going to let you go. Thank you very much uh, for uh, putting up with me. Anything, I guess, from you before we sign off? No, I thought that was uh, really good. Really good fun, and um, thanks for the opportunity to uh, to talk and bang on about flying. Brilliant. Smashing. I'll have that posted in about a week, and I'll see you in the future. Okay, man. Take All care. Right. Ta-ra. Bye.